0: The this is hardcore podcast. You just heard Hold My Own. The track Renown. Off the split seven inch carried by six on never ran, never will records. We went out to Chicago, early July, played the record release. It was fucking fantastic. Shout out to Out of Pocket, Shane Roundhead, Shane Roundhouse, and also to Volcano. Great show. Now Hold My Own. We'll be playing This Is Hardcore. Hold My Own will be playing a lot of shows, actually. Uh, August 5th, 10th, Grand Rapids Los, uh, with Life Agony and Sick of It All. August 18th with Chicago, Life Agony and Sick of It All. And then they're going to go out to the out of pocket record release with Sector, the other band. So, August 25 through 27, Santa Cruz, Simi Valley, Cali, and then Las Vegas. Whew, man, Hold My Own's really putting a lot of time and work into this shit. Greg Falcetto, gonna jump back around, come through, be the stage manager for This Is Hardcore. Appreciate all the hard work from Hold My Own. And also Love Never Ran Never Will Records. Look forward to more releases from that label. Big shout out to Richie Crutch. I'm gonna have some cool shit coming his way. Um real quickly, Matty from You're the Knife, still dealing with injuries. Updates you can find on the GoFundMe. And thank you to everybody who has donated so far. And all you gotta do is keep your prayers or your high spirits. And hope for a full recovery for Madison. Uh, it's This is hardcore time and it's very weird to not have her on the phone and talk to her. And I miss her. And we will be praying for her. This episode, I am recutting the intro. and The reason why is that... I use Zoom for a lot of these interviews, and we were losing some integral moments of the actual interview with Dwid because of the noise cancellation thing to keep out like out awkward backward uh, background noises. And when I sent the cut over to Dwid, he had noticed it. And if you ever wanted to peer into the mind of someone like a Dwid from Integrity, this is the kind of person who reaches for the high pinnacle the, the the most quality in anything that he's done and and I had heard that he's particular I'd heard that he really has a sense of where he wants things to go in art and in a lot of the ways and this man took the time and we gotta remember he's in European time so we have a staggered schedule and when he missed off, he dropped in some extra post-production tracks Just so that way the listeners, which are you, can go ahead and get the full understanding of what he was trying to explain. And at first, I didn't really get it. And then when he sent me over the post-production stuff and we put it in a place where it belonged, where it had gotten cut out. Man, it really, it fucking added something to it. And Just, if nothing else, I wanted to just point that out, that that's the kind of guide to it is, is that... In, in a simple podcast, he'll still go the extra mile. And I appreciate Jack for thinking of the podcast and thinking about you as the listener. So this is one more, I guess, uh, accolade for the man. Before we get into that, really quickly, This Is Hardcore is two weeks away. We have tickets available. You can go Saturday or Sunday, which your single ticket you can get online or probably at the door. We have a limited amount of two-day passes left. You can also get them online or maybe there. Friday night is completely sold out. And with our guest tonight, Dwid of Integrity, it's important to remind you that they are the headliner Friday night. And I mean, this is a, you know, clash of the titans, old school, all the way down to the new school, fucking amazing lineup. Happy to have Integrity, Earth Crisis, Dead Guy, Chokehold, Freight Train, Momentum, Orthodox. Hazing Over, Carbonite, and Statement of Pride all be a part of This Is Hardcore on Friday with this insane lineup. That's why Dwid's on the show. Uh, I really, really can't explain to you when I start thinking about doing an episode with someone like Dwid, there's so many different things that can be talked about, so many different things that have gone on in the history of him and the music she did and all the various influences that he put onto hardcore which we sort of get into and he has a really awesome story with his childhood i know several times in this interview he says he just didn't want it to be boring but i, I really do think the listeners who come every week I kind of have an idea of what they're what they're going to vibe on and i think that you guys are going to love this episode so we're going to keep this one short. You know to follow Philly HC Shows on Instagram and Twitter. Philly Philly Hardcore Shows on Facebook. You know to follow This Is Hardcore Fest on Instagram. T-I-H-G Fest on Twitter. And we're not going to do the threads right now. I don't think we are. So thanks to Dwid for making the time and putting the extra effort in. Thanks to Greg for doing what he does for This Is Hardcore and Hold My Own. And this is an interview where... I do believe you're going to learn some stuff. And for those of you looking for some kind of rehash of 90s zine drama, it's not going to happen. This is really a cool story. The goes deep. And I had a lot of fun with it. And I really appreciate the extra eye of detail that he has and putting in the extra effort for this one. So let's fucking go. Today we have one of the people that I think shaped hardcore i know that's an interesting thing because we've had it over a various amount of guests recently that you could add that to but specifically what jack and integrity did for hardcore and the directions not only just with the direction musically but the influences from everything that influenced jack his entire life really changed what i think is the landscape of what like song titles and song matters and more importantly, just where you can take a hardcore song. And, you know, I, I know people jump over fence left and right to give them accolades, like the Godfathers of metalcore and all that. But I, I think his story is absolutely unique and I can't wait to dig into this. So Tweed or Jack, thank you for coming on the show, brother.
1: Hey, great to see you again, Joe. Always a pleasure.
0: So, I know that you, um, I know that you have been doing this a while, and I don't know how far you've ever gone into the podcast stuff. What I like to do is learn from the person beyond before you, before you're a dwid when you're just John or Jack and you're growing up. Because I know that you have such a deep, I mean, I, there's interviews that you've referenced old soul music, old blues music. So I know that you have a very deep history with music. So I'd love to hear how you grew up how music came into your life and what put that on to put you to the path that eventually where we're sitting here now.
1: Hmm. Well, my, I, I grew up in Indiana and my parents are, were and are very religious. Um, they were interested in music, but mostly, you know, gospel music or a, uh, a little bit of blues stuff, but mostly it was gospel music. And um, so I, I grew up in uh basically like a farm area. And the music that was available to me, there was some country Western records that I could listen to as well, but there wasn't, this was in the early 70s. So there wasn't a lot of access to any, any kind of music other than what would be on the radio. And where I lived, there wasn't a lot of radio that could reach uh, that area. So I was uh, confined to whatever 78 uh, RPMs, the big old records that I could get, get a hold of, to listen to, and most of that was, was gospel and, uh, and Western music. So I, I listened to those, and I got a cassette player somehow from I think from my, uh, my grandmother, and uh, I would record myself, and I would record things that I heard, especially on Saturday nights we would have a, uh, a horror host television program in Indiana on uh, channel four for those Hoosiers out there that might know what this means. Uh, and the host was named Sammy Terry. And he was one of the traditional hosts where they would dress up and they would do like a frightening hosting situation and then play an old classic horror movie for the kids. And I grew up really looking forward to that every Saturday night. So with these cassette players, I would try to record it because VHS videotape recording was not yet invented at the time. So I would record the audio from that. And then I would re-listen to it just as audio. Like when I was a kid also, you could sometimes hear like um, radio shows where people would do, instead of doing an actual, you know, a, a visual play, it would just be the audio version of that. And you could imagine like what the people looked like, scenarios that they were in the costumes. It was all up to your imagination. And I always found that to be exciting, although at the time I found it to be constricting and boring. But later on, I realized it was, it was a great um, opportunity for me to advance my imagination somewhat. So I would record these horror shows on audio cassette and listen to them back and try to re- replay it in my mind, the visual aspects of, of the horror films. And these would be like the old Universal films, sometimes Hammer films. Sometimes like uh, the Vincent Price, uh, Edgar Allan Poe series that Roger Corman did. All the, basically all the classic films that would be prior to the 70s. They would play those. And eventually I learned, I, I would I would look at the cassette player and, and the cassette tape itself. And I realized that for those of you who, who maybe are too young to even know what a cassette is, it's basically like a, um, it's a magnetic tape. And one spool will unravel to the other side there's two spools that would unravel to the other side and fill up and then you have to flip it over and um I looked at that and I noticed that I could probably cut it into like a ribbon like a rubber band and make it so it would loop and I took one apart one day and I tried to do it it took me like weeks and weeks and weeks to figure out how to make it work and I eventually figured out I could put a little piece of like scotch tape, like what you use for Christmas packaging or, or or for a letter or something on paper. And I put that on there and I cut it with a razor and I made a loop that was kind of loose. And I started to record and I realized I can make these looping things. So then I asked a relative if they also had a uh, cassette player similar to these. And this wasn't like a cool cassette player, it was like maybe you'll remember these, Joe, like the kind that would be in a library. They were like flat and mainly I think they were for like. Dictating notes onto yeah. it, or something like that, uh, or or you would listen to like someone giving you uh, reading a reading a book or, or uh, having a lesson. So there were the really boring cassette machines, and then I got a second one, so then I could like sort of make a fake um, recording studio. But I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just bored and experimenting with things like that. Uh, another thing that I would do too is I would take. Elmer's glue, which is like the the white glue that you would put on paper when you're a kid to to put like um, collages together with paper mache and all this type of, you know, with uh, like crepe paper and and construction paper of different colors, you could like create things like that uh, using this Elmer's glue. And so I took a whole bottle of Elmer's glue and covered it over one of the old uh, 78 records that my grandparents had laying around. And I waited one day, two days, three days, four days till it finally dried enough that I could peel it off. And it made a mask, like, like a copy of the record, but inverted. And then I put that on the turntable and then I would play that. And I would like record that with a tape machine. So I just messed around a lot with recording when I was a kid. And I didn't know that that was anything more than, fun and goofing around and I had no idea that people made records any any way other than what I had already heard like very conservative kind of records and so eventually my um my parents years later got divorced and my father moved to the big city uh Louisville Kentucky and at this point I was um 13 the earlier stuff started when I was like five or six up until yeah continued on until I was well forever, I guess. But, um, so when I was 13, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and I went to uh, a camera middle school and there were some kids at the school there who had skateboards. And I think that was because of uh, the movie back to the future. So kids started having skateboards, but also at that time, punk rock started becoming a thing. And there was a movie called suburbia that came out around that time. And, uh, a lot of the kids fashioned themselves after the characters in, in the, in the film. And um, so I had the skateboard and the other local kids were like, Hey, we go to this place sometimes on the weekends called Charlie's Pizzeria. And um, we could buy pictures of beer and watch punk rock shows. And there was a band from Louisville at the time. This would be 1984 uh, called Maurice. And that was, comprised of people who later became members of the band um, Splint and uh, King Horse. They were were one band at the time and then they split off into into two different groups and other groups as well. But those would be the ones that it makes it easier for the story to just focus on. So those were the kids that would hang out and I was a lot younger than them. You know, I was like 13 years old. So I hung out with them. And I got to experience seeing these kinds of crazier musics that I, that I didn't know existed, you know? And I was like, wow, this is great. And you could also see that these kids who were just a couple years older than me were able to do it. So maybe I could be involved somehow, maybe. Uh, eventually later on, a couple more years later, my father and his new wife got uh, relocated uh, to Cleveland, Ohio. And then I was 16 years old then. And when I moved to Cleveland, Ohio, I met a lot of other guys through skateboarding as well. And in particular, Charlie Garriga, who is now in Judge and Gorilla Biscuits. Um, and back then he was just a skater kid, and um, and he he was my age. And he had bought a faction album, which is Steve Caballero, who's a pro skateboarder uh with Pal Peralta. And Steve was able to play guitar and had this band. And Charlie was like, You know, this pro skater, he has a band. Maybe I could play guitar. And we were like, wow, that's you're thinking crazy, man. And he went and bought a guitar and he learned how to play songs and immediately could play it because he's a really talented guy like that. And so then all of our friends thought, Wow, we could probably make bands too, you know? So we all tried to make bands and somehow it kind of worked out <laughs> in different degrees. Um, one of the things I that was really cool that we would do back then is you know how they have a um, you know how they have open mic night at certain cafes and things like that coffee houses well there was a thing in Cleveland at that time which was like an open mic night but instead of just mic it was full instruments so you'd have drums keyboards bass guitar and electric guitar and maybe other things too and people from the audience could just go there blindly with a group of friends or, or whatever, and take, get up on stage if you had the courage or if your friends were, you know, pushing you into it, and uh, get on stage. And then the audience would yell out something like, "Play a reggae song," "Play a jazz song," "Play a heavy metal song," "Play a country western song," "Play whatever," uh, "A soul song." And so uh, my friends and I would get up on stage and just do that and we thought it was fun and it was scary and now that I look back on it it was it was a great opportunity for us to get past what would later be stage fright for some people and also just learning improvisation on 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 stage in front of an audience and you know you know how your friends probably were the same way Joe my friends were also like ah you fucking suck even if it was great it fucking sucked to these guys because yep. that's how friends are. So, you know, although we were supportive of each other, we also were, you know, uh, picking on each other a little bit. So, and that, and that was done in, in good, good fun. And it also, you know, it encouraged us and emboldened us. And because we were skateboarders, we were used to falling down on, on concrete. So falling down on stage, embarrassing ourselves, wasn't that much different. I felt than, than falling down a flight of stairs with a skateboard. So, that's kind of how I learned uh, accidentally how to be on stage and and perform, and it was a really great experience. Some of the people that did that with me was Derek Green, who's now in Sepultura, Frank Cavanaugh, who was in the band Filter, uh, Charlie, uh, Bill Gill, Dan Valerian, uh, just a few a few friends of us would do would do that every every weekend, and it really worked out to be a, a cool opportunity for us. And then, of course. Um, around 1988, then uh, we became friends with the guys from Youth of Today and, and all the other bands associated with them. And they would come into town often, and we made friends with those guys. And we got a lot of um, we got a lot of uh, exposure as to how a band could work, and seeing how these guys would uh, network across the country and, and do touring and things like that. And they would also be really willing and helpful to teach each other teach other kids how, how to do this type of thing and so that was really uh, integral to to my development as a musician as and, and as a young kid um
0: and i'm gonna, I'm gonna before good. we get well, i want to get i don't i want to take it back to louisville because uh sure. for one question uh you brought up king horse and i'm i'm pretty good friends with sean garrison
1: uh, sean is that. the guy who gave me my nickname well that's
0: I, and I wanted to come in a round way since you brought it w- I don't bring anybody up who doesn't get Entries <laughs> by the guest um, I actually have uh, a painting of his And yeah. um, He to me for those who don't Listen he's the singer of King Horse uh, Sean Garrison aka Rat Is like a first generation Louisville Kentucky hardcore punk And he he Had a pretty decent broad um, His ex- explanation of You know early hardcore he didn't really think it was hardcore, like you know, like they didn't really have like a determined title. And I yeah. think, and and obviously, you know how he lives his life; he's so he's more of an artist than a regular human. Did any of that rub one at that early stage for you, running into people like that, and that's and that entire part and culture of Louisville uh, punk?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was a kid, Sean was known as Rat. Yeah, Rat, and 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 so my he gave me my nickname Dwid because I was drinking these pitchers of beer and i was trying to say hey dude to the cooler older kids which rat was one of and then i slurred my speech and said hey do and he's like "Ah, do and then he he gave me the nickname <laughs> yeah they, so that's they, they, they had like a pretty
0: decent uh they obviously had records and they had a lot of those first generation records and he had a lot of, um to say just about the cultural i always ask him about old questions about who was listening to what records first like and he'll say, "Oh, you know the Detroit guys. Those guys had those records from the UK before anybody else, and all that stuff." How much of that was? How much of the music of that generation was into you? Were you too young to even pick up on some of that?
1: I got most of my records through. Uh, there was a record store, and the name is just on the tip of my tongue. That that was in Louisville. I can't remember what it was called right now. Uh, I want to say it had Electric Ladyland, maybe and the guy who was the bass player in king horse he worked there and he would also like dub tapes for for people who didn't have enough money and i was one of those that's kids awesome. so he would like dub tapes of things like hey check this out this is cool and uh and make mixtapes and different things like that and so that's also how i got into other weird stuff like the charles manson acoustic recordings i got that from him uh just over the counter. I could. I don't think I had to pay anything for it. And other weird stuff. When I got that tape, though, I, if you ever heard it, it's like just uh, an old man on an acoustic guitar, yeah. kind of playing blues. But I had imagined it was going to be more than Black Flag or more crazy than anything I had ever heard before. So when I heard that, I was like, "What the fuck? This is like <laughs> hippie music." I was expecting like something so far advanced and crazy and and loud that I, you know, <laughs> I was a bit disappointed at first. But um, yeah, all those guys really were um, pivotal in, in me being into this kind of music at all. I mean, if I didn't meet those guys or go to that pizza shop slash club slash bar when I was 13 years old, I probably may or may not have ever found this stuff. I don't know. Maybe I would have anyways. It, it seems to always have come into my, into my uh, radar over the years. So I guess I was destined to be. But uh, I owe a lot to those those guys, especially you know, Rad is an amazing guy, and I love the King Horse music as well. It was a, a great thing, and and also around eighty four, I went to a record store. Had I can't remember what the record store was called, but um, it wasn't the Electric Ladyland or whatever the fuck it was called. Um, it was uh, just kind of a more normal one in the mall. And the police were in there and they were tearing up all the FrankenChrist records from the dead Kennedys because okay. it had this uh, Giger poster inside. Yeah. And the Giger poster had like paintings of penises going into vaginas like so, but most of them had diseases and sores and warts and blood and guts and shit, except for the one in the center. And the one in the center had a condom and it was clean. And that was their way of saying to punk people or underground people, you know if you have safe sex this is a better way to go without being preachy without being grandma it was like a cool way of trying to to keep people healthy and of course the government got pissed off and said that this was encouraging stds and fucking porno and they sent their their pmrc police to tear up all these records and so i was in the i happened to be in the record store at the time And I, of course, wanted that record, being a 13-year-old kid with a few bucks of allowance, wanting to spend it on a record. That was the one I wanted, the one that was, the the police were destroying. So after the police left, I asked the guy at the counter, and he said, oh, yeah, all those are gone. We don't have those. And um, I was a bit disappointed. And he said, but we have this cool compilation of bands from all over the world called the Peace War Comp. And it's got two albums. It's got bands from all over the world. And it comes with a big, fat book. Kind of like those uh, Maximum Rock and Roll newsprint yeah. books. But this was before I knew what Maximum Rock and Roll was. And it would cost the same as that record would have cost. So I was like, fuck, let me get that. And that's how I discovered Septic Death and Gizum and, you know, tons of bands who were on that thing. So uh, I think Final Conflict was on it. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't remember everybody right now. It's been so long. That but was out, uh, that,
0: was on, that was out on Radical Records.
1: Yeah, was it was a Radical
0: Records. dude. That's a that's a that's a sick. There's so many like a uh, first generation punk hardcore DRI stuff like
1: that. Yeah, yeah. I think DRI was on it too. There's so many bands on it, and uh, I still have it downstairs, and it's it's amazing. And the book is great. Just the book alone was great. All the artwork, all the ideas, all the different ways that each band represented themselves and portrayed their music, and it was just phenomenal for me. And uh, every band was different. And I think that earlier you were mentioning like that hardcore wasn't really a word yet. And at that time, to my knowledge, it wasn't a word. And what when I first heard of the word hardcore, that was when people, like you said, DRI was on these comps and things. So when you had the metal bands and you had the punk bands and you sort of had this gray area and Black Flag was one of those bands that was also blurring the lines a bit more into metal. And I think that that's where hardcore sort of started to become used more as a way to describe uh, a new subgenre at the time at least that's how i understood it was it was part however much part punk and another part metal it could be different values of, of either of those two and then you had hardcore and, uh, and that's how, of, I, how i understood it
0: now obviously you come you you come to a couple different like perfect crossroads at the perfect time you know, and i think a lot of it does have to do with the kind of people that we are, we end up in the in the right spot to be put in the next position to go to the next phase. So when you show up in Cleveland, you meet Charlie um from different interviews. People said there's always been like a, a fogginess because now we're talking 86, 87, when really the the big wave of straight edge is about to hit. And, yeah. you, and you mentioned Youth of the Day, You mentioned the judge guys. They're all integrally important people because of that record that comes out. And that first big U.S. tour that Youth Today does, that yeah. almost like germinates seeds across the entire country. Like that, oh, that, totally. that first that first tour that they did, really did do so much for people who were finding hardcore. And it's like, would well, depending on how how old you are, a second or third iteration at that point. Yeah. And Youth Today was like this banner waving band, straight edge hardcore. And I, I know some people in Cleveland had already had established bands, so it was seen as like the youth of the day and what they inspired along with the bands alongside it were kind of like the first real wave of real hardcore in Cleveland. Did you see that as such, or because you were a younger skateboarder, you were still not really putting the pieces together, like in a genre way, like this is a hardcore band and this is a punk band. Like when you were first seeing this stuff come your way, could you discern a difference or not really?
1: I mean I knew that they were different but I knew that all the bands were different so I didn't really put a lot of labels on at that time uh, onto music at the same time I was buying like I bought the NWA uh, 12 inch when it first came out and um, me and Derek Green and a few other people went into like a super bad area and bought that and they were like the fuck are you guys doing here you know you shouldn't be here you shouldn't be buying us and we we knew what we wanted and we we bought the record and they were like how the fuck do you even know about this so we sort of just imagined like all underground music to be of the same universe and some of them were just different uh had different titles on them but they were all the same ilk i guess you know so with back to your other question um uh, So like we, we thought that like hip hop and metal Metallica and Slayer and Anthrax, and also like, even like the early hip hop stuff, like Roxanne, Roxanne and all that crazy fat boys or whatever. We thought that that was all kind of the same thing. If it wasn't on the radio, it was kind of, it was part of what we could, we could listen to or that was part of our world in a way. I didn't really think of it that clearly, but I'm, I'm sort of trying to find the words to describe it in the way that was, at least I saw it at that time.
0: Well, but, also, I'd imagine as a oh, record buyer, just because they started having the PMRC stuff at that time, yeah, that, that it was probably just already like, I want to go and get the record that has a sticker that everyone's saying, we're not allowed to listen to it. That, <laughs> yeah, that, that,
1: that definitely helped. Yeah. Seeing that it was taboo really increased the the odds that I was going to buy that one. Also, like if it had a really cool cover of something that, you know, horror themed, then I would be more likely to gravitate towards that. But back to what you said about the the youth of today, guys, you're right. I mean, they came and they sort of planted the seeds throughout all of America at that time. And another part of the story is when I moved to Cleveland, I didn't just happen to move randomly to Cleveland. Although I did, across the street, like, I'm not saying this figuratively, I'm saying this literally, across the street from my house, directly across my driveway ended and a new driveway began. And that was the home of of a friend of mine by the name of Kelly Ulrich. And Kelly had a really big house with a really big backyard and a swimming pool. And her father was a lawyer and really uh, a generous guy. And he would always allow all of the youth of today guys to stay at her house. And they would all, even play in the backyard. They would put on shows for free in the backyard. Oh, sick. And so I would walk outside my house and see shows. I didn't have to. And oddly enough, if we step back a few years before when I lived in Louisville, a very similar thing like that happened where Sam Hain was on tour with Maurice and they rented out this, um, like. In a church, you have that that kind of room where you could rent it out for weddings or for for parties yeah. or birthdays and stuff. And they rented out this room, and they, I think that you know Rad and those guys probably made up some some lies about why what they were doing. But they rented out the room, and they had their band and Sam Hain play there. And that happened to also be in my back. This was my backyard. Youth of Today and Project X and uh, Gorilla Biscuits and beyond, and all those bands played in my front <laughs> front yard in someone else's backyard. So I had some pretty insane uh, geographical coincidences in my life that make no sense, but I'm grateful for them and, and they were really helpful. So when we all became friends with the Youth of Today guys and all their uh, other bands, at some point during the um, Break Down the Walls tour, it was summertime and we were out of school and some of our friends had cars and we were like, you know what, let's just fucking go on tour and follow them around. So we just followed them around and watched the shows and uh, went to like dozens of shows. And that's how, like we went to like Albany and that's how we met uh, Steve Reddy. And we went to uh, Connecticut and saw them play at the Anthrax with side by side. And And I think Project X played that one too. And at the time, like Project X, I think I saw Project X play like uh, five or six times. And back in the 80s, I think they only played nine to 10 times. So I saw most of their shows just off total coincidence and chance. So I I had this really weird um, magnetism towards weird underground (laughs) music, I guess. Uh, Another odd story is that my mother, who lived in Indiana, she eventually moved to a more suburban area by this point uh, in the in the mid to late 80s. And there was a, a guy who lived in her neighborhood named uh, Tyler Davis. And Tyler now owns a label called uh, Anya Offensive. And back then, he had sort of a distro, and he was selling different records and, and magazines and things. And he somehow had those Schism uh, Project X magazine seven-inch uh, combos. And I got one of those from him visiting my mom for Christmas. He just happened to be a kid in the neighborhood that I was friends with, and I went over to his house. and He's like, "Yeah, I have a distro." And I said, "What does that mean?" And he said, "Yeah, I sell stuff. You want to buy something?" And I had a couple Christmas puffs. so I bought Schism, uh, Project X, and then I came back to Cleveland and I showed it to my friends, and they were like, "Wow!" I mean, people didn't have the internet; you didn't even know stuff like this could exist, so it was all kind of word of mouth and everything. So a lot of things like that came to be similar to like how we got um, the first straight ahead uh, 12 inch and other weird stuff like that. It just all kind of coincidence. I don't know. Is this interesting or is this Absolutely. boring?
0: No, no, no. It's actually, okay. because the, the thing is, is this, if you put this story on top of today's thing or everything that you just talked about, would never have happened because you would have just clicked the button at your phone and ordered those records. They would have come to your house. Yeah. There's no serendipity. There's no meeting the band because it, it's just, this is the stories that people who listen to this podcast really enjoy. It's not like, it's not like the, you're not the grandpa saying I had to walk in through the four feet of snow barefoot. What you're saying is this is how I found hardcore. This is the synchronicity of what got us all together. And because yeah, it and, is it's truly, true. and truly is purely organic, you know, like if you, didn't, you didn't go and DM Ray and be like, dude, love your stuff. Like it, it's just this happenstance that organically built everything that you guys are now known for and what Cleveland is and everything that comes from it. And that's why these kind of stories I, I love and I give the my guests the most time because the more you talk, the more you fill out things serendipitously. like, hey, and I found this and I found that. And it just shows in the in that first and second wave, especially in the 1980s, how hard it was to be a hardcore kid in some regards and be just different than the average normal, you have to go to school, say your prayers, go to bed type kid. But then all yeah. the shit that would come because you're on a different wavelength. Like, you you know, like if you were a normal kid, you would have walked by that guy and never found that record. But because you were that kid, you were going to meant to find that record because how many kids in that area right. would have that record? And that's stuff that goes over the younger folks' head. And, you know, people just love hearing these things. So none of this is boring whatsoever, to be honest.
1: Okay, good. I was worried. I was not at all. I, I would, going up not, I, I,
0: I would. Uh, um, <laughs> it's, it's because, well, I mean, and, and obviously not to take it out of the timeline here, but, you know, you are who you are in hardcore. So depending on who's listening, it's like, well, how'd this guy even do this? He's more like a metal dude, you know, like, so it's great to hear because I think younger Folks even people only a couple of years younger Than me don't really realize That before there's integrity There's these little building blocks Of all this influence that Comes into play I mean obviously You know without jumping too far Ahead is like your first integrity show Ended up being in Pennsylvania with Judge you know That's like true. And a lot of the guys who I grew up under Were like oh yeah I saw their first you know like But integrity didn't show Up with devil horns and you know, all the Charles Manson shit out the bat. You guys were started like a more like a uh, down the middle hardcore band by that standard. And so I like hearing the in process. Between. Well, what I'm saying is, is you're not at the point you're at now, you know, like, yeah. and, and, and so just and it's an awesome story to hear the things that would eventually inf- influence you enough to actually jump in to do bands, which is what was, I was going to get to you next. So did you get asked to join a band or like, what was the impetus for you to do something more formalized than what you were doing with the improv
1: stuff. Uh yeah. So, so the stuff I was doing with recordings, I, I just thought that that was fun. Like science experiments. Dude, it's, I didn't know. It's, that it's, it's
0: amazing. It's
1: amazing that you were doing that. Yeah. It was just something. Cause I was bored. I, I don't know where I got these ideas from and there was other dumb things I would do with recordings. Like you could change the speed of these tape machines and other things. It was just for fun and, and kept me entertained. Um, at some point I was, uh, when I went to school, I had to go to a boarding school for a while because I was a bad boy. And my roommate was a kid named Bill Gill. And he and I put together a band that was called Eerie Wax. And uh, it was basically us and a, a fake drum machine, which I made with those tape loops, and uh, yelling into, a micro- into headphones as a microphone into his stereo and we had a guitar that was just feeding back and, and doing crazy stuff. And we put it on the, um, he had a window that in his dorm room, his window overlooked where the, um, where the outside area was where, where people could congregate. So we opened up his window and just like would blast people with this obnoxious sounds. And that was that. part of my first band, but it was just really experimental. And we didn't have any idea what we were doing. Were, we were, you, just doing really that, like were you
0: doing that organically, or was there any noise in Like that's like just completely off the cuff, with no influence from outside. Just like I want to make this cacophonous noise. Like, it, was there any influence, or was that just purely happenstance that you were just you and him were just going to do that?
1: Yeah, I think that what it was is that we we liked uh, metal and punk and everything like this, and at the same time, our teachers and parents and and grandparents would give us this interpretation of what they heard when they would hear like a black flag song, which was more akin to what we were performing then or like noise or like, this is like ah, ah," kind of stuff. That's how they would describe it. That's garbage. It's not music. This sucks. This kind of talk. So something inside of me made me think, um, that's what I want to do. I want to make the music that really is what is a, what's in their head and in their heart offending them. And that's kind of, uh, where, where I, where I was trying to gravitate towards. And if I could interrupt just for a second, I'll grab something to show you. Yeah, absolutely, Pretty Okay. I'm back. So I would be, uh, it would be unfair for me to not mention this instrument. So I got this instrument as a little kid from from Santa Claus, but actually from my uncle. And uh it does this. <laughs> it's it's a toy guitar that's distorted as fuck and i would use this also for recording things in my room and i didn't even know what heavy metal or punk was at the time and this was just happened to be a toy and i guess my uncle thought hey that would be a cool toy for a boy to have so he bought this for me and uh it's a one string guitar and it's really distorted and you can not really play anything on it but it was inspiring to me as a kid and um probably led me into onto this weird path too and i remember bringing this to uh school at do you remember show and tell they had yeah. that so we had show and tell and i brought this to show and tell and again everybody was religious so i brought it and i just like this i you know i turned it on and- mm-hmm. playing this, like goofing around with this at at show and tell. And the teacher said, you better turn that off. That's a devil's music. That's acid rock. And then I thought (laughs) to myself, that's fucking amazing. I didn't probably say fucking, but I was like, that's amazing. I love this now even more than I did before. (laughs) Yeah, she just gave you a name for what you were trying to do. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, she was like, this is so bad. You shouldn't do it. And then I just really wanted to do it more. And uh, the the kid that was after me, his name was... um, devin spilker who had a, a unique name and he came up with his show and tell toy and he held it up and it was this devil doll and i was like whoa look at that fucking sick vampire doll what the fuck is that and he's like this is the bass player for the band kiss and this is gene simmons and i'm like what is gene simmons what is this shit i'm like this is fucking cool and then i was in a grocery store and i heard it playing and they were like that was kiss with you know, that uh, that love song. And I was like, how the fuck is a vampire devil guy singing like disco love songs? It doesn't make sense. I wanted him to be, you know, making this, like you said, cacophonous, aggressive, violent music. And he, he wasn't doing it at the time. But, you know, whatever. That was my opinion. Not uh, <laughs> not that it mattered. But that I, that's way back into also how I viewed music and how i wanted to make music although i never really achieved it as as uh, aggressively as i i like to imagine it in my head and try to to capture it but it's it's always elusive and maybe the fact that it's always elusive gives me the ability to continue on and to keep trying to make something that matches what's in my head which ultimately is what in my head is what i interpret what my grandparents and my parents interpreted the music that i like but they Supercharged it with steroids, and, and I really want to one day be able to get there. <laughs> well,
0: I mean, it's 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 definitely a path that I think you've just carried on this whole time. Um, yeah. real quick, without delving too deep into weird stuff, um, like just odd questions about old stuff, uh, Wayne Kramer MC5 is always seen as an influence from Ohio, Indiana, th- throughout the entire Great Lakes. Was that something that the skateboarders? you were skating with was aware of or anything like that, or not really so much?
1: No, not really. Uh, when I moved to Cleveland though, negative approach would have been an influence. And we, we all went to a um, Knights of Columbus hall, which would be like a VFW hall yeah. or, you know what I'm saying? Yep. One of these halls that like Shriners and Masons and stuff would go to. And um, they would have shows in there sometimes too, for just a couple of bucks. And one of the last uh, negative approach shows of of the, before they broke up and then now they've reformed but uh, right before they broke up we saw one of their last shows uh like that and we talked uh, to the guys and uh they were really inspirational to, to everybody similar to youth of today but more negative of course
0: was there um did you were you aware of tooth and nail and, and the meat men and stuff like that or was that still a little bit further
1: out meat men yeah yeah charlie had the meat men uh were the meat men and you suck, I think it was at the time, and uh, I think it wasn't Brian Baker in that band for a while. I don't I mean, know they,
0: that's like a, they were like a powerhouse as far as not only with their fanzines, but they actually yeah. like, would be a huge dish row, so I didn't know if you had in uh
1: interactions so no, but I, I would buy a lot of records from placebo records from Phoenix, Arizona, and they had like Mighty Sphincter and j f a oh yeah, and then they had some noisy bands too um sun city girls and different things like that. And they had compilations of weird bands and, uh, bow was on one of the compilations too, actually. So even
0: uh, as far back as that, huh?
1: That would be like 86, I think.
0: Damn. Damn I didn't know they were doing stuff as far back. That's fucking awesome. I see, yeah. I see. Yeah,
1: 87. That was, that was, um, Placebo records that I, I want to, I, I can't remember what the name of the compilation was, but it was like Mersbell and sun city girls, JFA mighty sphincter, um, maybe 45 grave. Cause some of those guys were from Phoenix too. And um, it's been a long time. I can't remember. Probably some of your listeners may know. I, I,
0: I love that you are on like two completely separate paths here. Cause you love the youth of today, the, the down the middle straight edge, sing along pure fucking hardcore, was yourself delving deep into this noise dark completely not even a categories filled up for them yet at the exact yeah, same I mean, time thing it's is, awesome
1: i just i just love music that i felt was passionate or gave something back to me like emotionally gave something back to me and like when when people ask me about that like that i had a diverse uh appetite for music i usually make these like metaphors about uh what you eat each day. Like you don't eat the same meal every day. You eat different things for different meals, different days, you eat different things. Or if you watch movies, sometimes you might watch a Julia Roberts movie. Sometimes you might watch a sci-fi movie, sometimes a horror movie, sometimes an action movie, different things. You don't have to listen to only one type of music. Music is probably the only thing where people like, want it to only be one kind of music. And if you listen to other kinds of music then people are mad and it's, uh you know your opposer your uh blasphemous or whatever but for me i just thought that all the underground music was was together like it was all part of the same thing especially because when i understood what hardcore was it was an amalgamation of different kinds of music pushed together and then they just gave it a new word because i guess that was a way to put it in the record store i thought i don't know if i thought about it too deeply but i just assumed that, that was where these genres were coming from or journalists needed an easy way to convey, like, this record is like that, it's a quick word, everybody kind of gets the idea, and then they can move on to the finer details of it. I don't know. But yeah, for me, like, I just like all, I still like all kinds of music, and especially underground music, but I can listen to some pop music sometimes too. Depends, I mean, everything has its own purpose, you know? it's just like that. I don't know. I don't know if it doesn't make sense, I guess, because people always told me I was wrong for that, and uh, I don't really care. But <laughs> Now, do you, think, do you think because
0: of your early childhood in the church and there like really hard stance on different things musically, that this is another reason why you approached the darker and edgier side of music later on?
1: Yeah. I mean, the church itself is very dark and, and, uh, and cryptic. So especially the church that my my family is associated with the Pentecostal church so I was um already hearing about you know apocalyptic things and I was also while you know I would make uh drawings and um collage and like I said before recording these horror shows as a young kid and really loving these horror shows and watching them all night uh, and and they thought that I was uh, possessed by the devil or a spawn of the devil and called that often too. And I, at first I was like, Oh, maybe that's bad. And then I just sort of felt that maybe that's who I am. And then eventually I just realized that it was just their projection. And uh, over the years though, I went from resenting their religion greatly to sort of appreciating it from a different point of view as it being a lot more evil than than any of the evil stuff that I've ever experienced or listened to or or read about or watched movies about. And uh, sometimes when people ask me about, uh, when I started listening to like black metal kind of music and, and when that stuff started popping up, I always thought that it was weird that they would, that the guys and nothing against those bands, but I always thought it was weird that the bands that were into the black metal, the Scandinavian bands that were into black metal and and formed black metal, they would often say things like, I love evil. Evil is everything I love. And then the interviewer would say, yeah, well, what do you think about Christianity? Oh, I hate it. It's evil. I mean, you should fucking love it even more, I would think, right? I mean, that's yeah. the most evil, so fucking gravitate towards that. But you know, that's <laughs> a, a bit of a joke, I, I'm not really taking. No, but it I seriously, mean, it's so. it, it
0: has a it has a definite <laughs> it has a definite truthful side to it, right?
1: Yeah. Like so if you for wanna, me, if you, you want to go yeah. with the most
0: evil thing is what's more evil than the fucking Roman Catholic Church?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what I think. So, so then you know, when I sort of came to the re- the realization of that, I thought that way then I started to sort of appreciate the Bible as being much more evil than I ever. I mean, I'd always thought it was like the pinnacle of, of righteousness, but the more that you read it, the more that you see it, there's a lot of wonderful evil things in there. I mean, more than any, any kind of dark metal record that you could ever read. I mean, and and so then in that way, maybe Striper is, is the true slayer or whatever.
0: (laughs) I mean, for those who don't have never tread into the Bible, just God's bullshit stance on on job yeah. and, and the devil's simple way to walk in and allow God to just let this man who is so pious suffer so absolutely horridly is is just and something that if you don't the first time you if the first time you read it, you don't really grasp it. But then if you start looking from that point of view, that this is not a really a good lesson about loving God. If this, if you take a step back, you're like, if he loved, if he did all this for you, why are you allowing like why are you putting subjecting this man through this? The Bible has so many bizarre stories, and it takes steps back or steps off an angle to really see another side to it and go, Hey, that's really fucked up, man. Like, you know, like it, it, it's it's interesting if we, if you go through different lenses of the Bible.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and so eventually I got to looking at it from different perspectives and started to appreciate it a little bit more. And uh, you know, I even have lyrics that uh, that deal with b- biblical tales and uh, and scripture sometimes from different interpretations or different um, renditions of the Bible because they're you know the translations have changed, and then you also have uh, the uh, Council of Nicaea and, and everything yep. you know. Guys, but um, yeah. Well, I'm sure your listeners don't want to hear about this stuff. But, anyways, that that was kind of a thing where I, I realized that you know the church was even more evil than any of the evil stuff that I was imagining. And and at the same time, you know, uh, in the '80s, we had satanic panic, which meant yep. that everything was evil, everything, and that's also where the PMRC was able to to rise to power by by saying these things were evil, and because of that, and because of how I was boxed as being you know, a uh, spawn of the devil by some of my family, I started to research best I could into, was it true? Is there really these cults of, of killer cults, satanic cults uh, that are roaming throughout America? And I remember being a kid and seeing other kids that looked like me appear on the milk cartons and wondering why are these kids on the milk carton? What the fuck? I was told that America's super safe and everything is, you know, like leave it the beaver, let like it's you know wholesome 1950s uh, uh, type stuff. And now kids are missing. There's all these f- missing kids, and uh, I started to to research into that type of thing, and that's how I found out about cults and uh, other weird, um, weird weird rabbit holes of things like that. And and that's also a, a bit of the the back
0: the background for all the different influences that would pre- come out in the Integrity Records.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that would be like one of the seeds that started the integrity lyrical content and uh, and that universe.
0: I was a young um, child through the 80s, so I got to sit in front of the TV and yeah. it was Missing Children, the Charles Manson. Even though Manson had already been in jail, the yeah. first half of the 80s was Manson every night somewhere. You could watch a show on Manson any single day of the week because he was so – and I tell people that who are, who are younger, like – You don't understand the cultural figure that the mass media in America made him. Like it it, it was, it it was, he was a big rock star. He might as well been a big rock star. Well,
1: he was the boogeyman. He was the devil. He was the guy underneath your bed. So if you were not good, he was the one who's going to come and get you. And he was so maniacal, like the Joker in a Batman movie or something, but worse. And it was like, what the fuck? Who is this fucking crazy person? You know, and also Throughout my life, there was always times where I would bump into Manson-related things too. Uh, up until the point, I even made records for Manson and uh, other weird stuff. So, yeah, it's just uh, I have this <laughs> this strange life where I bump into things like that. Not
0: to uh, get off topic, because were to jump in a turn, because you're from Indiana. Were you any? It took you a little bit later to get into Jonestown and all that.
1: Until I knew about Jonestown or?
0: Well, because you, you said you're from Indiana. I know John started or Jim started in Indiana and eventually would go west. Was that something that was uh, getting covered when you were like? Fi-
1: no, but, but the, the deaths in Guyana yeah. were, were on the news, but they didn't talk about his origin. Mostly they talked about, if I remember right, w- w- was that he was ambassador ambassador of religion for governor reagan at the time things like that they, i don't think they talked anything about him being from the midwest when i was a kid uh manson also was uh put in a boy's town in, yeah. in indianapolis where, where i was not too far from there but i also didn't know any of that either i didn't know all that stuff was close to me it was just the uh,
0: serendipity that it's all in, in that whole circle right there uh yeah. so when do you roll into your first role as a is, – is it Integrity or is there a band before Integrity?
1: Well, I had the the, the thing called Eerie Wax. I wouldn't yeah. necessarily call it a band. And then I had uh, a band sort of with some friends called uh, Common Sense. And then uh, that didn't really amount to much more than us playing like Iron Man by Black Sabbath um, in oh, my yeah. base. And then I had a band called Die Hard with Aaron. Oh, that's right. That's right.
0: And Aaron, Aaron was the bass player. Me. Yep.
1: But there's an album that came out, but I'm not on the album. Oh, okay. Uh, that's somebody totally different. And he has different lyrics. But one of the first songs that Aaron and I wrote uh with Scott Stearns was called Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. And that we carried that off, uh carried that over into integrity uh on the first album. And uh you could kind of tell, like, that the lyrics are written by a sixteen-year-old kid, uh, but I think it, it, it's it's a fun song, and uh, it was kind of influenced by Motley Crue and, and different things like that. And uh, we, I still play that song to this day. That's the, one of the very first songs that I ever uh, really wrote, uh, you know, other than the ones I goofed around with. So what
0: and, was the uh, what was the inertia to get Integrity off the ground with all them guys? Were you just trying to? Were you trying to do something for your area? Like, what was the, what was the place that said, you know what, fuck it, we're going to do this specifically?
1: So I did Die Hard for a while, and we played a lot of shows locally. But um, I ended up getting kicked out of Die Hard because they didn't like that my lyrics were weird and that my vocals were not like, like everybody else, um, or like what they expected everybody else to to sound like. And so um, I also. Uh, Because I was interested in art, I did a lot of um, printmaking and and screen printing at school. And I had an opportunity at my school where the teacher that ran that department got in trouble, uh, legal trouble, and had to leave the school. And they didn't want to hire somebody else or they didn't have the budget or whatever the reason was. They didn't didn't want to have a new teacher come in or maybe they couldn't find someone last minute. I don't know what it was, but it was towards the end of the school year. And since I was the only person who kind of knew how to do everything there, the school approached me and said, would you be willing to just do that, just teach the kids how to screen print? And if you do that, then you won't have to do the other studies. You can just teach people how to print. And then I said, well, do I get paid? They said, no, you don't get paid. And I said, well, do I have to pay for my own stuff, like the resources to teach these? Because I don't know what being a teacher is. They said, no, 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 all the resources that we have in the room, you can use them all. And so awesome. I said, "Like, I said, so you mean like all the inks and the printing and the sticker paper and all that stuff and the screens, I can just use that as much as I want, whenever I want. They were like, yeah, of course, we're not going to make you pay for that. And I was like, oh, thank you for not making me pay for it. It's very generous of you. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Fuck. There's was like 10 pallets of vinyl sticker paper. There's all this fucking t-shirt printing equipment, everything. I'm going to just make a fucking lot of shirts and stickers. So uh, I gladly agreed to this thing. And then I showed the other kids how to do it. Sometimes they would be printing stuff for me, which would be integrity shirts and stickers. Other times we would, I would teach them how to print. Uh, most of the kids, almost everybody in that class wanted to print, you know, Jimi Hendrix shirts Led Zeppelin shirts, Pink Floyd, Grateful Dead, stuff like that. So I would just set that up for them, let them do that. And then I would just be doing my stuff nonstop. And um, which leads to how integrity got a record deal. So I had no songs at this time for integrity, but maybe I, I should step back a little bit in how I was thinking about it. So I thought I had this religious book, which is a few floors down or I would run down and grab it and show you. And in this book, the logo that is the candy bar, the square logo of integrity, that's where I took it from. The book was called Integrity. It was a book that my stepmother owned. And it wasn't a fond, it was somebody had hand drafted the, the 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 words integrity onto the book. And I just photocopied that and then reversed it and just made this block and started using that as my what would be my what I considered to be my real band and Die Hard was like my um, intern band, like a band. I was going to figure out what I could do, what I couldn't do and make mistakes. And then when I figured it out, then integrity would be like more of the band that I wanted to do, which would meld the stuff that I talked about when I was a little kid, stuff that I talked about when I was uh, a preteen and a early teen, like the darker stuff from Louisville, which was, more horror themed, you know, Sam Hain and King Horse and these kinds of uh, imagery and and septic Death and the horror movies and mixing that also with the the bands that I liked and listened to and also what I had learned from the youth crew guys and mixing all that together and including also, you know, Motley Crue and Van Halen and Black Sabbath and Dio and all the other things that I liked as well and mixing all that into a cauldron. And that was kind of what my idea was, was to be. And so I was making all these shirts and stickers and things all on the school's dime. And when bands would come through town, like Gorilla Biscuits and the youth crew bands and stuff, I would give them all free shirts because I knew that their shirts would be sweaty and and stinky from being on tour. So I'd print off my shirts and give the shirts to all my friends that that would come through town. And uh, sometimes I'll see like old photos of like, I would make confront shirts and other things like that. And so sometimes I'll see like photos of like youth of today wearing a shirt that I made. It was like one of one and, and funny things like that uh, on on Instagram or somewhere. Uh, these pictures will occasionally pop up. And so, uh, to bring us back to the story at hand, instead of meandering, one day uh, Gorilla Biscuits, they only had the seven inch out at the time, were coming through town and I knew Walter from all the bands that he had been in prior to, to Gorilla Biscuits as well. And we're friends. So when he came into town, I was like, here's some shirts. And uh, he played in Cleveland. And then the next day he played in Chicago. So when he was in Chicago, you know, it, you know, Walter, he's just probably the nicest guy alive. He's like the fucking Paul McCartney of, of hardcore. He's incredibly talented and humble and just an amazing guy. And so I gave him this shirt and some of the other guys too. And he happened to put it on because I think he was not because he liked it, but probably because he he had no clean clothes. And he went into the venue in Chicago and this young guy came up to him who was Tony, Tony Brummel from Victory Records. And he said, Hey, um, I have a record label. I only have a couple records out and both of the bands had already broken up. And I love your seven inch Walter. And I'd love to do, Uh, an album for Gorilla Biscuits. I'm trying to make my label, uh, you know, take off and I'm having a little bit of trouble and I'm really a big fan of your your stuff. And Walter being the nice guy that he is was like, hey, I appreciate that, but, um," and I'm just kind of guessing what he said. I I know it secondhand. He said basically something like, hey, you know, I appreciate that, but I already have a deal with my friends at Revelation. We already have the album recorded. It's coming out pretty soon, whatever. But my friend Dwid, he has a great band, Integrity. And so this guy sees that he's wearing this shirt and he thinks, wow, this must be the new great band, you know? Little does anyone know that I have no fucking real songs except for songs I beatbox <laughs> to myself, in my head, and to friends. And so um, I get a call. Uh, this is when you had a phone on the wall. And I lived in, like, what would be, like, what we would call a punk house where lots of kids lived in a house and paid like little bits of money to live there. And, uh, we had a wall phone, like, uh, you know, the rotary phone on the wall that was stuck to the wall. And if you got a phone call, some other kid would write it down on the, on, on the, the dry erase board or on a piece of paper. Hey, you got a phone call from this guy or that guy. And so I came back and they said, Hey, you got a phone call from a record label with the air cord <laughs> And they thought that it was me calling my own house, pretending that I'm a record company to fuck with them because we would prank each other a lot. And so then I'm like, oh, sure. Yeah, a record company called me. And then I thought they were pranking me too. So we both, everybody thought there was a prank afoot. So then I eventually said, well, I'll call and see, you know, fuck you guys, I'm going to call anyways. And, uh, And the guy answered and it was a real thing, I guessed. I wasn't sure still at the time. And uh, Tony said, hey, can you send me your demo? I'd love to hear it. I'm interested in putting out your record. And I said, well, I don't have a demo. And he said, why not? I said, well, because I'm a 16 year old kid, I don't have any money and I can't record because I don't have any money. I'm just a kid in high school. And he said, well, I'll send you a check. And this is a rare moment where uh, Victory Records wanted to send somebody money. And uh, he sent me a, a, a small check. And I was able to, well, I had this check and I was able to like record a three song demo. And Aaron, who had played bass in Die Hard, uh, heard about this and he said, hey, you know, can I play on it? Before that, I had put together a band that was Derek Green on, um, on, guitar or bass. I can't remember. And Frank Cavanaugh on whatever the other one would have been. And Bill Gill was on drums, but we couldn't really pull it off. And Derek and Frank also had a band called Outface. So while I was trying to put that together, it just was falling apart because Outface was doing pretty good for for what they were doing. And and they were, I think that they had already, they already had a demo out and they were working on on an album. And um, so I got this offer. And then Aaron heard about it, and he said, hey, I'd like to play in this band with you, but I want to play guitar. And so um, this ironically, uh, or, or coincidentally or kismet, like you were talking about before, a girl, a friend of mine who who is a girl had received a guitar for Christmas, which is a JB player. Uh, I have one over here. I can show it to you.
2: Get back here.
1: Yeah. So. Oh, did I move this fucking thing? Can you see me now, Joe? Yep. I think I bumped the. So I don't know if you can see this in your. Yeah. So this is a, a JB player and it's almost identical to the one that the girl gave me. They were sold at Toys R Us. They're a smaller scale and um, they have a whammy bar and they're just a, a cheap guitar, a toy guitar that was made to promote the band Vixen and, uh, and just to, to sell to kids for Christmas and things like that. So she gave me a guitar very much like this, but not this one. This is one I got later. And then Aaron said, hey, I'm going to sell my bass and buy a guitar. And I said, this girl just gave me a fucking guitar. You can have that guitar. So I gave him the guitar somehow this fucking guy learned how to do solos overnight, like <laughs> fucking Randy Rhodes or Ingve Malmstein or something, like out of nowhere. Like he was a bass player, and then immediately he was just like a virtuoso on, on lead guitar soloing like crazy. I have no idea how how this magic happened. And uh we recorded a three-song demo, we sent it to to Victory, and they were like, Hey, this is really good, and then we were able to do uh a seven inch, which was called uh, "In Contrast of Sin," yep. but before the seven inch was out, um, we did the tour with with Judge. And the first show that Integrity played was in uh, in Reading, Pennsylvania, like you said before. And uh, that was our very first show. I think we might have played a couple Die Hard songs. We definitely played Judgment Day. We might have also played like a, a Straight Ahead cover or, or something like that. And uh, and then the few songs that we had. And we played a few few different shows with Judge down to I think to Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, maybe maybe more. I don't remember. And uh, that was the start of, of everything, right there.
0: Now, where did you decide to take it after you started feeling any traction? Because obviously, at this time in hardcore, just having a tape out with Tony behind it and the people behind you guys is from friendships. I imagine it wasn't too long after that more people beyond just your local area knew who you guys were?
1: Well, the local area didn't really know who we were and they didn't like, like what we were doing either. And that was part of why we played out of town at first, because when we went to record the demo, uh, some of the other local bands made a call to the recording studio and tried to talk him out of recording us. And there's, there's some stories that I could tell about how, uh, how it was to be able to record at that time so like in the 80s you couldn't just record like on a computer you you had to go to like a real studio and in cleveland which is probably similar to what it was like in philadelphia uh, mostly people were recording who were making r&b records or um, sometimes rap but mostly r&b and r&b was a huge thing in in cleveland and none of them would want to record this kind of music. And we went to I went to some of these people and played tapes of other things that I liked. And they were like, We we won't record this bullshit. This sucks, you know. Wow. Fuck that. And so I couldn't get any place to record it. And I knew some guys who um were in like glam bands, but they were mostly cover bands. They would do like mostly cover songs of like uh Bon Jovi or Poison or Motley Crue or whatever whatever was hot right then yeah that was the hot stuff at the time like cock rock glam rock and then they would throw like one original number in there they'd make these tapes and then on the when they play on the weekends lots of young girls would come to see these bands it was predominantly girls they'd sell the tapes to the girls in the hopes that one of their original numbers might click with somebody and then they blow up and they might be on MTV or whatever but, you know, it it did work because Warrant was one of those bands and they became popular. Um, but anyways, uh, the place that would record us recorded those guys' demos, all, all those Glam guys' demos. And that was the only place that would do it. And the reason he did it was he was he was new and kind of inexperienced. And I think he just also didn't like R&B music. So he was willing to record us because we had a potential real record deal even though it was a seven inch at that time would be considered like a single, like yeah. not a real thing, but, um, he, he was willing to do it anyways. And so we started recording, uh, there with him and there was a couple of punk bands who had recorded there, uh, prior to us. And one of them called and said, Oh, don't record those guys. I think that they were pissed that we had a record deal without, uh, whatever reason, you know? Because of shirts or whatever, or a streetwear band, a streetwear brand that had a band, I guess. So uh you know, now streetwear is a, is a cool thing, but back then yeah, I don't totally. think streetwear existed. I don't even think that was a real word back then. I don't know. But uh so we re- did the record, and then we um we went on tour, and we came back, and then we eventually played in Cleveland. Uh, I don't know, ten shows into into uh, the band's um career so that was a weird thing to be to not play locally and i think that it was good too because it made us not a local band it made it so that there weren't boundaries that so we didn't have to subscribe to what other bands in, in the town were doing we also didn't have to follow the rules of only playing at that club or this club or never playing out of town we just mostly played out of town and rarely played locally which was the opposite uh strategy of the other bands of the time so i don't know if this stuff is interesting uh, it's absolutely interesting of-
0: again again same deal this is the the stuff that gets falls in the crack sometimes
2: of
1: the, yeah. of the story. i think it's boring and I, and I, and so and that's why the- it falls <laughs> in the crack for me but but if you're <laughs> no. not if you're if you're still finding it interesting i can continue no it, it's it's not so much <laughs> I, I can understand because you're like dude this is
0: fucking 30 years ago but there's a lot to be said about the trajectory that is hand in hand between Inconscience of Sin and Victory Records, and what I really, when we was talking about earlier, there is a, a, like, a, like a way that you guys forked off this path almost immediately. In 1990, obviously Walter had, you know, gorilla business was slowing down, and Moon Dog was a thing, and a lot of them guys in that part of hardcore were starting to shift towards the post-hardcore stuff. Because there were so many bands in that 88, 89 era. You had the Gorilla Biscuit, you had the judge, you had the the top bands, and you had a slew of straight-edge bands, the straight-edge labels, and those bands weren't as even anywhere near the same ilk and level. So when Integrity comes out with something that is so raw and and different, but still at its base has hardcore involved in it, I think that's really why, in in contrast to Sin, Took off the way that it did was because you got you guys managed to keep the part that hardcore hardcore, but give it something else so you're not just the 38th band that has straight edge stuff all over the record. Yeah, and
1: also a huge part of that was Aaron Melnick. Aaron Melnick was one of the only people who I had met at that time, and 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 to be honest, one of the few people I've ever met in my life who also has a, a very diverse interest in music he listens to all kinds of different kinds of music and and listens to all kinds of different watches all kinds of different movies listens to reads all kinds of different books he's he's a very diverse guy and he and i when we met we both were like hey i like this i like that all crazy things you know from gothic music to to punk music to whatever you could talk about, any kind of music, even classical music, we all see, he and I seem to be on the same uh, wavelength, even though we had just met, we had a lot of things in common, like way more than anybody who I I had ever met in my life. And, and, and also to, to this day, pretty much. So that aspect of he and I being so broad in our thinking was, was, was our strength Whereas everyone else saw it as a weakness or they saw it as us being um, posers or whatever the words would have would have been thrown at us at the time. But we just liked a lot of different kinds of music. And we thought we like this part in this band, like maybe this part in a Christian death song is cool. But what if they would have done it like that? That would be fucking awesome. So that's how we thought you made music is like you listened to a lot of different kinds of music. And then you were like, hey, I love when that band did this, what if you took a part like that and then you tacked it onto a part like this band, that's totally different. And then you Frankenstein another part here, but then you know that part kind of could have been better. What if you made it more metal, made it less metal, made it this, made it that. And that's sort of how we tinkered these things together. We cobbled them together like Dr. Frankenstein from all of our influences, pushing it together, and then also being inexperienced, we when we tried to recreate these things, we didn't do it correct. We did it wrong, but but we did it right because we did it through our own lens. We did it through our own soul and through our own heart, and then it became our own thing because we were using these influences just as markers or just as molds, but what we put into it was from ourselves, and then what what came out of the oven – became uh what those integrity songs were and so that was a, a a magical luck again for me to meet Aaron and uh he's still uh, you know a treasure of a friend to have and uh, I'm very grateful to know that guy now, I,
0: I think the Im- the impact and legacy of what you guys would do together it's so crazy I, I I'm pretty sure you may or may not know there's a band now um, our friend Bob put put them out. He, you know, he played FYA for Bob. They're called Live It Down, named off the first song. And they basically are just drawing all from the same influences. So you gotta think about stuff that you guys did 30 plus years ago. Kids now are doing it and so raw and it, it, it's so raw and still aggressive to this point. And there's not really something else exactly like that Cleveland raw metallic, but still very hardcore based sound. Not in anything until later on when more people start adding metallic stuff into it. I think it's really unique that you guys came together that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I never really noticed that other bands sounded like what we did. So I never understood the Cleveland sound thing. There was always different kinds of bands. There were bands that were very Kind of straight edge sounding and very kind of metal sounding and different things, but I didn't really notice any bands that were kind of doing the similar thing to us or or that we yeah it's generational it's like later on people always say that so I guess I'm wrong
0: but no when uh, I think when you guys were doing it you guys were like what I'm saying is you guys were the you're you guys are the fathers of this so then you got the next iteration that comes towards you know different periods the early two thousands there was a ton of bands from Connecticut and Boston who were obsessed with you guys and obsessed with the Holy Terror and all the stuff that would come. Oh. And even the 2010s, and now we're in the 2020s, and a bunch of guys from Cleveland who have been fans of guys forever. They're doing it, and it's just as raw and aggressive, but it does all stem back to you guys.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, like the Rolling Stones, they were really into um, Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and, and guys like that. And they tried to make those records um, based off of listening to Howling Wolf and listening to Muddy Waters, but when they what they came up with became the Rolling Stones music because they put they, they weren't sharecroppers and they weren't in the same world as Howling Wolf and, and Muddy Waters. They didn't have the same experiences and they didn't have the same uh, heartbreak and, and and troubles and things like that. And the Rolling Stones, when they tried to emulate those guys, they came up with something totally different that was more part of what they were. But Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf's influences weren't Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf. Their influences went back further. So when bands are um, trying to emulate another band, normally they're going to come up with something different and new rather than coming up with the same thing because... The other guys were influenced by something different, and before that, so like Aaron and I, we were influenced by Bauhaus and Black Sabbath and Joy Division and uh Slayer and Metallica and Septic Death and Geezum and all these weird bands. So, when bands are um wanting to have a similar sound to Integrity by s- listening only to Integrity, they're not going to have the same thing because they're going to have. A different generation of that influence, I guess I don't know if this makes any sense, but it makes total sense, yeah, so that's how I, I i always saw saw that when people would say, Hey, look, we're sounding like you, I would think, well, you're listening to my records, but you're not uh we were listening to other records to yeah, make gotta, they're not going to
0: the source
1: they're, you're yeah, now so the, we're going from you're, a now their, place.
0: you're now their source,
1: you know. <laughs> It doesn't necessarily make it bad, but I don't think it's going to go in the same, it's going to be the same uh, result because they have a different recipe than we had, than we had at the time.
0: I also think that the direction that you took the band, not just with the lyrical content and the the art and the concept, it really drew, you know, the opposite of what a halo would be around the band, so to speak, because (laughs) hardcore bands weren't touching these kind of topics. You know, like, and in fact, it wasn't sacrosanct, but there were, you know, there was the urban influence of the 1990s that actually helped catapult you guys with the burgeoning beginning of a real metallic sound. Where all these other bands, I mean, you saw it in Europe, and you saw it on the East Coast later on, were I mean, with the exception of like the early Brooklyn bands, were really also metallicized. But you guys really laid the foreground of like, hey. You don't have to talk about unity every song. You don't have to do that, you know. Like, and the the artwork was always outstanding, and I think it really did place a, a real, raw, pure imprint that this is integrity, and it's different than the rest of what hardcore is, and it's really fucking unique when you're leaving the end of the '80s, getting into the '90s, and you know, we talked about all this homogeny and everything's kind of boring and the same you guys are still standing out and that's only because you guys are the ones doing it.
1: Yeah. We just did what we wanted to do. We made records that we wanted to hear. And a lot of people have given me, um, given me crap for, for saying that, but I don't understand why somebody would make a record that they don't want to listen to that they don't like. That's to me, that's crazy. But people always said to me, Oh, Oh, You, you like the records you make? How, how fucking pompous are you? You're a fucking arrogant bastard to like the records that you made. What the fuck? Of course I like the records I made. Why would I make records that I don't like? That makes no sense to me. It's totally crazy. Uh, another thing that probably was a catapult for, for Aaron and I was right after in contrast of sin, Aaron and I met a guy named Rich Patrick who later on, um, started to play guitar for nine inch nails and then he formed a band called filter and he was our LSD drug dealer and we would buy sheets of acid from him every week and uh, we would eat as much of it as we could and we would sort of uh, MK ultra ourselves in my uh studio apartment which was not as exciting or as glamorous as it sounds it was actually like a warehouse that I lied to the guy that I was using as a art studio and he said yeah you could rent it cheap but you can't live there and we fucking live there anyways we rehearse there and everything but but it wasn't something like a posh you know loft it was a shitty worn out warehouse kind of a thing and we would just sit in there and do acid all the time and dream up crazy ideas and think like hey what if we did this with music what if we did this with lyrics what if we did this with artwork and different things like that and that was a real big catalyst for what became those for Your tomorrow. and we we wrote that record in there. and um during that period, doing all that that LSD and other crazy things. and uh, and those experiences really helped to to grow uh, the band into into what it became with those for tomorrow.
0: now, when we start talking about stuff like the the imagery, Around like the the church or final process and all that kind of stuff. Were you really delved into that deep, or were you? Some people write lyrics, or they write records with like a, a skim skim amount of information. How deep into all this stuff were you getting as you were like processing stuff for lyrical content and stuff like that?
1: So at that time, I mentioned earlier like there was the Satanic Panic, yeah, thing that went on in America, and that I was. Interested in finding out if it was real, but I didn't have the internet and I didn't have the resources that that we have now. So the only resources that I had was sometimes at certain uh, record stores or sex shop stores, you could buy zines that would have CD content. You know, like you would have zines that were about like serial killers. Yep. You could buy zines that would have like um, photos of crime scenes, autopsy photos, but they'd be badly xeroxed. And then there was also like crazy stuff, like um, there was a, a zine called Pure that was made by this guy Peter Sotos from uh, Chicago. But there were all these weird zines that you could get at like crazy kinky places or really extreme music stores. And oftentimes in the back they'd have classified ads, and those classified ads sometimes would be looking for sexual victims or partners and then other times it would be people who are looking for pen pals or people selling their own zines or different things and so i would write most of those people in the back of, of those classified ads asking them about like cults and different things like that and that's how i found out about process church and other you know serial killer things like that and, and became pen pals with people who were um were predators, uh, human predators, and learned a lot of things. And also, you know, I also got like weird solicitation uh, correspondence as well. But um, that, that's how I, I got into that, or that's how I got uh, exposed deeper into that, because there wasn't the ability to find that. And then I would just try to just find out as much information as I could And, you know, and also through that, I I found out about more extreme music as well. But that's how it came to be. And it really was a curiosity because I wanted, like I had this idea and maybe it, maybe it stemmed from, like you said before, Manson was the boogeyman and he would be on your television every night to like scare the fuck out of children. And I sort of imagined that there was something behind him. I mean, I still had this very strong religious upbringing and even though the lens that I saw it through was was, was now skewed from where, where my parents were, I still sort of saw everything in the same hierarchy and uh, all the archetypes that, that my family had uh, either worshipped or feared, I still saw them as as being uh, present. So I would imagine that there was something greater, more evil lurking behind and, and and behind the curtain of Manson and, and other serial killers, you know, Henry Lucas and, and Otis Toole and Berkowitz and all these guys. So I just thought there was something that had to be behind a curtain. And that's what I kept trying to figure out what that was and, and who that could be. And in my mind, it was something more, more uh, diabolical, more of a demon rather than just some British uh, hippie type guys that were into, uh, evolving Scientology, but, you know, Scientology was spawned ultimately from Crowley because Jack Parsons, who was a student of Crowley. He's the guy who turned, uh, turned, uh, Scientology Elrond turned Elrond Hubbard into what became Scientology. He taught him about Crowley's, uh, methods and he took that and his and l L. ron hubbard took his science fiction background and sort of melded that and that became scientology scientology grew to be popular for a period of time process church saw that and well the guys who later became the process Church were part of that they spun off from that there was also other diabolical uh groups at work that were funding them and you know all this stuff. It just was like for me it was a an exciting uh, way to sort of unravel things and find out interesting um, to keep myself entertained, much well, like when I would put glue on records when I was a kid. I, I th- it was kind of like that.
0: I think the the lens is that for those who don't understand, there's there really was this red, white, and blue nineteen eighties America it, yeah. in the TV. And yet to me as a child, yeah, there was the, you know, there was the constant war, you know, we were always worried about Russia, but there's also everybody, everybody you named, they might as well also been as important or, you know, even though, you know, Kiss and all these guys are a big bands, I saw more serial killers. I, I, I was more worried about leaving my house because of crime in the 1980s in Philadelphia. I, I feel like TV really did. If you were, even if you're between whether you're five or 18 in the 1980s, there was a lot of stuff on TV that kind of really fucked you up, you know, Like, and, and when you start going through these cults, as I got older, you know, um, for us, I played Dungeons and Dragons. So I remember very early on, you couldn't even get, you can only get a Dragons from like a hobby shop yeah. and, it, and only really weird humans who fuck around with them train sets. Sell hobby shop. So I always thought it was like kind of we never went to a hobby shop yeah. without four of us because it was kind of shady just to, you know, like it wasn't at that time. And that's the thing I think about people who listen, who may not really understand the landscape of it. The 1980s was cult after cult
1: after cult and like exactly what you laid out for people, you know. Yeah. And, and your d d friends. You guys were also considered the same way that I was considered like spawns of the devil, worshiping the devil. You're spinning the dice for the devil, like all that stuff was also part of their campaign to like stop that too. They were all, all trying to fucking stop anything interesting at a time. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I I bought
0: I rebought all the old 1970s uh, books before they pulled the devil stuff out before TSR gave up, and I'm like looking at it like. Holy shit. This really has tons of devils in it. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting. But for those who don't understand, like there is an entire, like, you know, like you want to, it's not fan fiction. It was like legitimately, this is what human beings were doing. They were leaving yeah. their families, joining these cults. And when this cult was kind of falling apart, Hey, now we're Scientologists. Let's go here, baby. We're to this. Yeah. And if people who don't have this reference might think like, Oh, this is so weird, but it's not weird because what are you going to do? The 1980s culture was pretty fucking dry and boring. It really, yeah. was, it really was. And then, then in the early 90s, I mean, aside from the way hip hop, because I, I, again, I grew up in a, in a very urban environment. Hip hop went from being graffiti and beatboxing and breakdancing to, well, we can't go out in the corner because they're shooting and selling crack now. You know, it was a totally different schism. And then that dominated the airwaves. So if you're a crazy kid with long hair, you're trying to go against the entire counterculture at this point or, you know, the current culture, you're trying to be counter to that and and you're looking for anything evil. I remember the first time I saw a Burzum record, I'm like, what the fuck is like, you know, this on the cover, it was the same thing as you're, as you're, as you're delving in this stuff. But again, integrity just had no qualms putting this stuff alongside the music. And that, I think it gave it a bigger depth for what hardcore could be because you can only sing about so many things so many damn times right
1: yeah i mean there was also the component that a lot of hardcore people didn't want us to be considered hardcore with those first records and there was even zines where people were like boycott these records they have solos the lyrics are about weird stuff that we don't understand and we don't like it and all these kinds of things And so there was a a lot of years where people were like, that's not hardcore. You're not hardcore. And I just thought hardcore was part of this and part of that pushed together. I didn't know there was like, you know, like an actual rule book and that we were breaking the rules. I just liked what I liked. Aaron liked what he liked. We made what we wanted to hear that didn't exist yet. Or that we heard things were like, that's kind of cool. And that's kind of cool. Let's put that together and add another part and add this theme and make it like that. We just thought that was how you're supposed to be creative. And I still think that that's how you're supposed to be creative with music. But I was told often that that was wrong, but I don't really care. You know, I do it anyways. But um, because we were told it wasn't hardcore, then we just said, okay, then it's not. And when people would say, oh, you're hardcore, I would get confused because everyone was saying we weren't hardcore. And then, yeah, so, and then there was a period where people said we were metalcore and I didn't care about that either. I just did what I like to do, and I like a lot of kinds of music, so I don't really have a uh one category for it but um well yeah. th- it's cool that other people were inspired that's great i I don't know it's just a weird thing, you know <laughs> the titles are weird to me somewhat
0: well, I think it's it's hard to you don't want everything to lay on your feet, you know you don't wanna and you don't wanna be like the the torch bearer for anything, but I think. The interesting aspect of you again, and now knowing about what you did with the tapes and loops, I I really love going to record stores because there would be random records that you would just put out. And it would just be like this noise thing. You're like, what the fuck is this man up to? <laughs> you know, like and, yeah. and, and, and I think that another indelible trait with you is that you were not afraid to release something. Exactly what we spoke on this already caffeinous noise influenced And it threw people off Because everybody from the hardcore vein Especially the v- victory Era of hardcore, anything Almost anything with a bulldog on it People were buying just because it was brand recognition And you're off he- Out here doing some just wild Shit with music, which I just <laughs> I-, I love it because Not everybody did that I mean, Not everybody Did the crazy shit Everybody did the thing to either sell more merch, get on more tours, and that's what I was wondering. How much did you, as you, as you, and Integrity grew with the label, and label growing? Did you get shit from them for not playing ball and doing everything the way that they could maximize profits? Was there any issues with you and Tony as far as your creative um, output, anything like that? As uh, they grew to being one of the biggest record labels in
1: hardcore. Well, they would always tell us that we never recouped. Uh, we would only be allowed $1,000 an album. And again, this was the time, it wasn't like you were recording in GarageBand in your, in your friend's basement. You had to record at a real recording studio with... Yeah, you guys were going to Mars eight. at that time, right? Yeah, we always went to Mars for the first five, five albums, I think, and all the singles in between. So it costs a lot of money to record. And we would just squeak by, and usually we would be way under um under we would have way less money than we owed and he would just be cool and be like okay well i just i'll I'll let it slide and then but even up until the last album we only still got a thousand bucks which never recouped somehow and this is prior to mp3's existing so we would go on tour and we would have like lots of people at our shows worldwide but somehow we never recouped and um The guy would be cool about it though. And he would always give us like a little bit extra, you know, several extra hours of recording, but we'd also have to go into the studio really well rehearsed and know what we were doing and just lay it down as fast and as good as we could so that we could mix it and have enough money to mix it decently. And and it was really difficult for us. So we had a lot of difficulty in that regard, as far as the finances were concerned, Um, as far as complying with what other Uh, what was popular and things. Yeah, we never would do it. And we never really felt uh, much of a kinship with the label. Whereas I think Revelation and and some of the other labels had like more of a brotherhood and everybody was like looking out for one another. Victory didn't seem to have that same kind of vibe, at least for us. Maybe some of the other bands had a different experience though. But for us, it didn't seem so. And um, it was difficult uh, to be on the label. And Alt- uh, at one point, I tried to get on relapse for uh, "Humanity Is the Devil," but they thought that we were too hardcore for for the label at the time. So they passed, which is,
0: which is ironic because I mean, even though that they were really based in the real deep, what are you going to call it, extreme metal underground, they were so present in Philadelphia that they were, you know, all their records would slide into the hardcore people's hands because yeah, yeah. they were marketed on the same shelves. I mean. Half of the hardcore scene was there for one of their um, one of their little like things in South Street, and the headliner was Nile, and they said, "Welcome to Metal Delphia," and forever we're like Nile's nah, the hardest band ever. <laughs> I fucking love them, just for the, like, You know, they they really were still a part of hardcore. You know, and I I remember. I mean, shit, they they'd have some bands like Neurosis play, completely DIYs by it's out in the middle of sure. West Philadelphia. So it's interesting they passed when I think, they could have had a really awesome time with you guys you know especially then
1: yeah i think it, it wasn't that they that, you know i think they just didn't really understand what we were about maybe they just assumed we were more like some of the other bands uh that were known with victory i guess they sort of just uh uh generalized what we were rather than paid attention to the at the time you know of course that's changed now um but you know relapse also at that same time had what was called um release, which was their other side label. And they did a lot of noise uh, releases at that time as well. And uh, they put out uh, a Merzbow record that I think introduced all of America to Merzbow at the time and uh, and changed the course of, of, of noise music forever, I think, w- with what they did then. So, you know, I think it was really that we had short hair and people just even to this day, I mean, the name integrity to some people, they were like, Oh, that must be like fucking straight edge, hardcore band. And they're just like by the paint by numbers, you know? And when they listen to it, they're like, this doesn't make sense. You know?
0: I so. mean, you guys, you guys at one point, <laughs> you guys at one point were on a ton of magazines um, and this a huge influence. But I think just at that time, I don't think anyone really knew where to put you guys like what, Everybody wanted exactly what you said previously. Everybody wanted a title that a publicist yeah. or someone could use to per- per- perfectly place you where you belong. But you guys had had so much different influences that it was like, it wasn't that easy to do.
1: Yeah. I think that that was probably a big part of it too. Like they probably were like, how do we even market a band like this? It doesn't make sense. But uh, you mentioned Neurosis. Our first European tour was with Neurosis uh, so uh, when awesome. they were transitioning from uh alternative tentacles the jello's label to relapse but they at the time they didn't have a new label they were still on alternative tentacles but they were trying to get off uh, off the label for whatever reason and on that tour like all the labels were coming up to those guys and like giving them drugs and trying to coerce them with women and everything you can imagine like they were like rock stars and uh and Aaron and I were like, what the fuck is going on? This is fucking nuts. You know? and, uh, and they were awesome to tour with. And uh, each night we would do a Joy Division cover and they would do a different one. And we would sort of like compete, like not compete, but like, you know, do it as like a funny thing. Like, because nobody liked Joy Division then at the time. That like heavy guitars didn't like Joy Division at the time. So when we would do it to each other, we would dedicate it to them. They dedicated it to us. And it was a fun tour to do we were we were a little we were teenage kids so that was nuts for us to be able to do that
0: it's a blessing really to really go out and just do something like you're up and think about where you came from your background yeah. and then there's this, this band that you do because you like doing it and it gives you this opportunity and exposure to a whole different universe man
1: yeah i mean i i sort of saw it more as like we were terrorists and we were like almost a cult or something. And we were like ruining everything too. And I thought everybody wanted to kill us at every show all the time. Sometimes they did, but I thought all the time, everybody hated us all the time. And uh, so that probably had something to do with also the fact that I didn't give a fuck and I just did whatever I wanted to do. And, uh, but I probably would have done it anyways, but I just, I guess I just figured I don't have anything to lose. I don't care. I'll do what I want. Uh, I But I would have done that anyways. I don't know. I never really thought about it until right now, so this isn't really a formulated answer. It's just
0: <laughs> I like I like uh, answers boring. that I like answers that aren't boxed. Before I get into waxing on what it is like to do integrity today, I I read a ton of different things that you wrote, and I, I, there's so many different things that we can peel from. But the thing about humanity being the devil, a lot of people took and almost try to get you to literally pull out some kind of Prophecy at times, and one of the things that I love, said is you're like I I don't you know like look how we act, look how you know look how we and you, and you phrased it pretty well by reference Manson and other people, and their thought process on how humans treat the earth, and I and I just wonder if again to go back to it, how much of that was just a complete amalgamation of all the different influences from the church and how you grew up to everything we just talked about in, in not only writing a record like a humanity devil, but having to foster these kind of uh, questions from time to time now that you're penned
1: at. I was always haunted by religion, whether it be that I wanted to find answers like a lot of people do, or the fact that religion was targeting me as a villain who they wanted to burn at the stake. Uh, so to speak. So those two aspects kept always resonating with me and making me always considering and researching and studying religion and trying to find answers for myself, because I was incredibly angry and uh, I wasn't able to come to terms with my childhood and how I was treated and how I saw the world and how I was different than everybody else, or at least that's how it felt to me. And um, so all of those things, and also just researching as many religions as I could get my hands on at the time, I could see that there were sort of certain patterns where, you know, there is a villain to all of these stories. And that villain is humans. The humans are the ones who create all the problems. The humans are the ones who you you could put the best people in a room and somehow they're going to find one reason to hate some of those people to the point, the longer they're in that captive, in that room, the more dire it's going to be. And then people are going to, there's going to be some kind of like mini genocide in that room, given enough time and just seem that way. All just seemed like humanity was always that way. And, you know, when you look back, like people sometimes say, oh, the good old days, but the old days were also like that. People have always wanted to find a reason to hate one another and try to uh, exterminate one another. And their religion is better than the other person's religion. Their whatever influence is better than the other people's influence or, or whatever. And that's just kind of where it came from. Was that? I mean, humanity's the devil is actually a process church uh, yeah. title. It wasn't my yeah. own title, but I thought that it made sense for the album. The album isn't really about the process church, although there's some pieces of it. But ultimately, it's about religion. And like vocal test is sort of a um, a primal scream uh, without words. It's just like everything is so fucked that you can't even put it into words. So, and at the same time, it's something that anybody can can participate and, and be a part of at the show, yelling that even, you know, and I noticed lately, like going on tour, a lot of younger people don't even bother to know the lyrics. They just want to yell in the microphone for whatever reason. Maybe so they that's just want the microphone. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's a perfect song for that as well. And it and it crosses all uh, language barriers as well. But, you know, ultimately it was that. I mean, it's just that I I've always had a very bleak outlook on life and it probably stems from my religious upbringing and um, everything just sort of was, was colored by that. And that's why I got interested in religion. Originally I got interested in religion to rebel against religion. And then I became interested in religion because I wanted to find answers and also try to figure out why I was somewhat targeted by some of the religions. And then later on, I became fascinated by the religions themselves and also the ideas and behind them. And then I was interested in the, in the similarities of the religions. And then I became interested in variations of interpretations of the religions, you know? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have a, an answer to it, but it's just a, an obsession, a fixation with religion and trying to find uh, answers for myself as to who I am, what I am, why I'm here. And I'm still trying to figure that out, but um uh, luckily I have an outlet like this to to sketch out these ideas. Whether they stick or not, I don't know. Some some of the things still I I some of the things that I've I've touched on I still have an affinity towards and I still think that maybe there's some truth in some of these things and maybe there's some truth in some other things. And some of the things that I thought of didn't make sense. And then, then there's some lyrics that are just based off of other people's beliefs that I thought were interesting. And I wanted to, um, to write a song to sort of um, cinematically uh, express what I thought their religion was expressing at the time, or at least the way I interpreted it. So,
0: uh, Conceptually or lyrically, have you ever tread somewhere you wish you didn't go?
1: Um, I think, you know, like my early songs were very basic. So I, I'm sometimes a little bit embarrassed by that. And then there was like, uh, like to die for, there's some sarcasm in some of the songs that I think was lost and people interpreted it as more of a sincerity like when I talk about like how we dressed and things like that that was more like making a a bit of a joke uh and then it got interpreted as that was supposed to be how it was and I don't know but I you know I, I really shouldn't have played games with it and and just expected people to understand my sense of humor so there was that I mean I'm to blame for that you know.
0: When but I don't know really, when you did that record, were you having fun? I know that record had a lot. I mean, obviously you have a good connection with Jake and Deathwish, but there were some perils on that tour. Right. But so my question is, like in your mindset for doing that record, were you just trying to have fun and do a record? Like what did you go going into that that allowed you to have that little bit of like the joke that wasn't seen?
1: well, we, what had what happened was we were supposed to make a band that was totally different. That was going to also be on Victory, and it was going to be more like uh, a violent version of Van Halen and Motley Crue. And at the last minute, Victory said, "No, we're not going to do it because we we had a guy from Warrant who was going to play in, in the band too." Oh shit! And uh, and they were like, "No, we can't do that. That's fucking stupid." And uh, but we thought it would be cool, you know, like Motorhead glam rock, but you know, twenty. 20- 30 years too late kind of craziness. And uh, so at the last minute, he was like, no. And then uh, so we were like kind of sad about that or disappointed. And then we were like, okay, well, uh, what can we do? Let's just do a record like what everybody fucking expects, you know? And then that's where my sarcastic uh, side came in was that I was being uh, um, snarky, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And so that's what it was,
0: as the English would say. You were taking a piss, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sort of taking a piss. Yeah, so you know, there's there's that, and like uh, you know, there's sometimes people are like, "Oh, those songs mean the most to me," and then I feel kind of bad, you know, that these songs exist because they weren't meant that way. They were meant like me saying, you know, "Fuck you" for expecting me to be only one way.
0: Well, I think by the time by the time that came out, there was so much extent. I mean, you know, we're talking. 13 years of the band 13 years of you guys doing whatever the fuck you wanted so yeah. it would be hard pressed for people to go all right now he's back he's back on board guys like you're you've always been an outlier in a lot of ways i think yeah and, and that, so it's hard it was hard to see it was hard to see you guys not to, i mean everybody has a different reason for doing a record but it'd be hard for you to say like nah you know like without some form of like either a dark comedy or just having fun with a record you know but well, not all the songs are that
1: way but the title yeah, track there's a couple yeah and yeah, the title track is like is a snarky joke but uh, the other songs are legitimate songs and, and stuff but um yeah you know they have the dark content and, and the religious content and things like that but you know the title track is 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 a snarky uh sarcastic thing
0: <laughs> now we're looking at we're looking into the future and the and the recent past you i mean we had you guys play i can't believe it was already a year or so ago you guys you guys came out here and played phoenixville and you were in the best mental health i've ever seen you you were in some of the best physical health i've ever seen you
1: thank
0: you and you brought a a level up to integrity and not that not that the bar was low for you because i mean you guys had Crush it at this as hardcore. You guys had, you know, especially since the bringing the Dark Lord himself Dom into the band for a couple <laughs> years, you you really recaptured all the energy of what the band had. But I think seeing you in that small room and you just being exactly what people wanted you to be in the sense of the sound, the power, it was fucking awesome. How does it feel? To, do you feel like you're coming full circle back to the songs, the old songs? Like how do you feel? going back to those things like judgment day what are your thought process as you're like do you get like oh fuck we'll play this just because the kids like it like where's your head at now as you've been doing this for now we're looking at 33 years of doing this
1: yeah 35 years i don't know what is i'm not good at math i don't know uh yeah 35 so um yeah, I don't do the songs because I say, hey, I think the kids will like them or, or whatever. Often I just do the songs that I, I like. I think that, um, you know, we, we did a lot of reissues lately. So there's a lot of the old material in that because I want to support the old records. Yeah. So that Relapse gets their their money back. But also, I love those old records, and you know, we recently played in Cleveland a couple of times this summer, and Aaron came out and played with us. One one show, he played all the songs, but uh, another song, another show, he came out and just played a song with us. So it's fun to to do that and to um, uh, experience, you know, like I guess like a, a midlife crisis or something, you know, go back to your youth, kind of a thing, maybe. Um, as far as the show that we played for you at Phoenix, so that was a lot of fun. And you know, I I stopped uh, drinking uh, several years ago, so I'm maybe in a better mental place, but also maybe not. I don't know; it's hard to say. I think I'm more clear-minded, but then at the same time, I'm aware of everything, and everything that annoys me really fucking is magnetized, uh, magnified. As the
0: kids kids call it, raw dog in life.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) like like that. It's just like It's, it's rough. Do you think
0: that anything? Did you ever get to a point previous to that where the substance took over? You ever, you know, like you seem like someone who still had a handle and control in your life because you were you were always doing things. There's always you always had projects in the air, art stuff, music stuff, noise stuff. So there was never a moment I'd been less. I don't know. I'm aware that you like you were overtaken by any of your vices.
1: Yeah, there was a there was a time where it was like that, but it was more like there was a period about 20 years ago, when I moved to Belgium, right before that, somehow, I guess I had made enough records that people thought, oh, he's a quasi-celebrity. And wherever I would go in Cleveland, I would get in for free, drink for free, stay after hours, all of this, which people would be like, that's great. I wish that would happen to me. And I started to realize this sucks because I'm not making anything. All I'm doing is celebrating shit that I made in the past with people for no reason at all. There's there's no no, nothing to celebrate. I should be making more things. I shouldn't just be fucking giving up and celebrating. I should be making things. And I started to like think about that more and more. And then eventually I ran away from being, pampered to a place where it was uh more more difficult or more isolated or whatever so that i would be able to focus on working on things and not be just having a good time having a hedonistic life instead i uh went for the hardest uh, well, not the hardest but you know a, a more difficult life uh, on purpose so that i would have incentive and 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 reason to do my work and have time to do my work rather than just have a good time and Celebrate all the time. And uh that sounds weird when I tell people, and it sounds weird as I'm saying it out loud, but that's how it was.
0: <laughs> no, it's honest. I I w- always yeah. wondered how the transition to Belgium was. Like I know you guys toured in Europe a lot, but to go from just being, I mean, you've been an America Heartland kid most of your life. So yeah. what is the experience now for you looking back and and how do you view the world? Now, because you have the lens of where you are from, where you live, like, how, how did that, did that change anything for you? Obviously, besides the travel and the physical position, like, did it mentally, yeah. did it expose you to more stuff? Like, what was your experiences overall?
1: Well, like you said, I, I, I've been traveling to Europe and other places uh, most of my life. Well, when I was a little kid living in an Indiana farm area, I remember looking out, being five or six years old and looking out over cornfields and I could see what I thought was the end of the world. And I thought, you know, I see things on television that don't look like just cornfields. So there has to be more. How come I can't see that? I was a little kid. I had no concept of, of, of logical thought, but something in my head kept saying, you know, I want to go and I want to see these other places. I want to do things. And when I had the opportunities to do them, I took them. And like with our first tour, I mean, I don't think we should have, I don't think that normally we would have been allowed to do our first European tour, but we really forced uh, the hands of fate to make it happen. We paid for our own flights. We sort of just almost showed up unannounced almost because you didn't really have, you didn't have internet. You didn't have any way of communicating with these people. And we almost showed up, you know, without, uh, without being invited Although we did have a tour booked, it just was not booked very well at the time. And then we jumped onto the neurosis tour as, as, a, as a lucky coincidence and that saved us. Um, but being able to, to see the world and to see the different things in the world, knowing damn well that I should have never been allowed to do any of this stuff. I should probably have just stayed on that farm I mean, his fate would be concerned. They probably the universe expected me to stay on that farm and never really leave that several miles of of terrain. So I feel it uh, grateful and and a great stroke of luck that I've been able to go as many places as I have. And so living in in Europe has been. Uh, an interesting experience because things are very different uh, here. The way people think is different, but the way things are that are operated on a political level, government level, or even on a social level, is, is a lot different than it is in America. So it took a lot of adjusting and uh, deprogramming. I guess would maybe be the way to say it from from being an American person, even though I was, you know. Um, Uh, an outcast and interested in punk and, um, you know, devious ideas and things Um, living here made me realize, wow, I really had like all these other, you know, instilled patriotic things that I never knew I had and other weird things that were just put into my mind from school and from other authority people. And um, so I sort of deprogrammed myself from that and, uh, you know, just focused on my work and developed, you know, I, I did more drawing. I did more uh, writing and more music and things like that. Um, but I'm in America quite often too. So it's not like I'm totally removed from America. I go to America almost every month, it seems. So I still have, have that and I can still go there as much as I, as I like visit my friends and family and also touring. So it isn't that I'm uh, fully removed from America either. Uh, I don't really know if if any of this makes sense what I'm saying. It but. does
0: It absolutely <laughs> does <laughs> You're 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 so harsh and critical of your answers. It's great. Um. So with upcoming, this is hardcore this summer. It it. it I remember I you know, you, had, you did the posi numbers in 2002. You guys have played a lot of American yeah. fests, and they just still don't. Come anything close to the big European thing, but if you look at and I and we could this is where I was trying to juxtapose this question right after. If you look at the festivals that are huge in America, like the Riot Fest and all that, they're really not anything like the level of the underground in Europe. And since you've been playing the European festivals in the underground, and you played the American festivals, what is America lacking to get the the the, the real underground music even anything close to the level of the festivals in europe
1: well i think psycho las vegas would be the most comparable to to like a european festival because they have the really really big acts they have the decent sized acts they have the medium sized acts all of that and they have the diversity so you'll have um danzig and emperor and uh King Diamond, and then you'll also have uh, Knocked Loose" or uh, uh, "High on Fire," or or and even you know comedians were playing that thing. Cycle uh, wow. like like uh, what's his name? Uh, Andrew Dice Clay played it. Like we played it, so it a few crazy times. You to think about that. <laughs> yeah, we played it a few times, and one of the first times we played we played right before Andrew Dice Clay. We're like, what the fuck? We're <laughs> well, playing same stage? Before Andrew Dice Clay? <laughs> That's weird, you know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. So, so they aside, it's, it's, it's still like uh, apples and oranges, I think. And I didn't know oh. because you have it from the European perspective. What like, um,
1: so I think what you like you're that? asking me is what, what, what's, what's lacking in the American one. And I think that when I mentioned, uh, cycle Las Vegas, the people who follow Psycho Las Vegas follow it uh, like it's a it, it, it's they go because it's the fest. They don't go because of the bands. Okay, and that's how it's in Europe. So you'll have uh, Hellfest. That's a really big one. In, yeah, in
0: France. one of France.
1: So people will go to that, and they don't give a fuck who's playing. I mean, they know that it's going to be good bands, but they don't they don't necessarily. If their favorite band doesn't happen to be playing, they're not going to be like, you know what, I'm fucking not going. They're going because
0: festival culture, essentially, is what you're saying.
1: Festival culture. They have a camaraderie with the other people who are also into that. You'll also notice that there's a lot of people in Europe who collect the um, the wristbands. They have these like um, fabric wristbands that go around your your wrist, and each one is you know special for each festival. So they'll collect them, and you'll see people like in the winter they still fucking have like ten of these things on because all summer they spent that. The other key thing that separates Europe and America is that in America, you have to work every fucking, you know, every month of the year. In Europe, you get like, like American schools, you get the summer off. So these people get the summer off paid. They go to festivals, they get drunk, they go to vacation, they do whatever they want to do for for the summer. Americans don't have that luxury most times. Not at all. So I think that that strengthens the ability because they have this money. They want to do something. They want to do something socially with their friends who are all into heavy music or into dance music or whatever it is. Cause they also like one of my neighbors has a festival called uh, Tomorrowland. And that's a really big techno festival in Europe. And people go to that the same way that people go to Hellfest. It's a different group of people mostly, but. They go for, you know, for the dancing and for, for that experience, whereas the Hellfest people go for the more the metal uh, experience and things like that. Uh, but that's, it, there's a culture to the festivals over here and the people are really into that. I'm not so into it. I don't feel comfortable at any festivals unless I'm playing them, then I can hide away from people for a period of time and then come out when I want to, and then go back and hide if I go as a spectator, then I'm fucked, you know, I feel like I'm going to melt under the, under the sun. Uh, So, yeah, but that's my own uh, mental issues.
0: (laughs) Where do you think you're going to take integrity moving forward? Like now, like, what do you like when you think of what's the next stuff that you want to do? What do you like, where, where's your head at?
1: Well, I, I, we're already working on a new album. And we had been working on a new album. We scrapped some ideas and things. And like now uh, I have different people from different periods of the band working together with me on songs. So I have like Aaron is working on some songs, and Dom is working on some songs, and the new guys are working on some songs, and I'm working on some songs. And then we're all sort of working on songs together too, and trying to come up with things uh, around that, but also around the theme and the storyline to make it, uh, you know, like all the records, I always tried to make them have a bit of uh, their own universe so that there's um, something deeper than just music and, you know, topical lyrics, but something where you can like go deeper and deeper into it and research things and, and find hidden things hidden in the lyrics that may or may not be influential to you or be inspiring to you or be, surprising to you depending on who you are and you know I like to be able to have multiple listens to something and have a depth to it where there's there's uh passion and a a lineage to it uh I don't know if I'm putting these words out correctly but you know like there's characters there's storylines and then there's the whole universe that integrity has created over all of these years that can be referenced. And I think that there's a sort of mood that all the records consistently have. Some have it more than others, of course. And um, the listener and, and myself being a listener as well can become absorbed in that and escape reality, escape the universe, escape this earth for 45 minutes while you experience the record. And that really, I guess that that's probably my, my greatest, um, point of making all of this stuff is so that I can be removed from this flesh for a period of time while I'm creating. Uh, I guess that that's probably my motivation. Um, what to expect. Uh, I don't know, I guess I yeah, want I to be surprised get. as well, you know, but, uh, I'm always trying to reveal something to myself. I'm always trying to, to, to dig up something that's inside of me that I know is there, but I don't know what it is or why it's haunting me. And I'm always trying to exhume that and bring that to the forefront so that maybe I can feel uh, relief or maybe I can feel understanding about why I feel that way. Um, and at the same time, I'm entertaining myself and, you know, exercising my demons and there's so many things there's not really one answer and uh is,
0: yeah. is there a medium beyond right re- uh releasing music that you're trying to get into have have you ever thought of like scores and films and and like even just short stories is there stuff that you've held back from trying out to get further along down the line with that
1: no i've i've done a score for a film uh, oh cool was what was N. that it was called the last hillbilly oh, and, uh, it was in cons. I think it wanted a, a thing. I don't know. And, uh, I did, I did some score for that. And, uh, uh, that's, that's the only time I've done anything like that. Um, I've draw. I draw all the time and, yeah. uh, I write a lot of things, but usually that ends up as lyrics, not as, uh, something that people actually read, uh, you know, in a book, uh, other than in a CD book or a lyric book, so I, I I've thought about doing things like that, and people have asked. When there was like a there was a period where a lot of musicians were making um, uh, autobiographies, and I was asked to do them as well. But I thought, you know, an autobiography is a book that you make when you're done, not At the end. Or doing things. So I didn't want to do that. I also didn't really. My story doesn't uh, match up with what everybody else. Uh, their stories are all kind of uh, in a similar way, and I, mine is not. Mine, I'm from fucking a farmland near nowhere, so uh, I don't know how exciting that would be for people to read. And really, I think the only exciting thing about me is is the music that I created. Isn't I'm not that exciting. I'm just a conduit for doing the, for creating these things. If you see my daily life, I just wake up and I work on things all day long. It's not very exciting at all. I try to find solutions to problems and try to build things to make those things come to fruition. Whether it be mentally build them or actually physically build them, whatever it is, uh, that's all I do all day long is try to try to uh, entertain myself and solve problems. I don't find it to be very interesting, you know. I mean. I appreciate you doing the podcast. I don't mean it that way. No, though. I didn't take oh, yeah. it that way. No, <laughs> I don't I mean, know I how interesting any of this stuff is. The, so
0: <laughs> the there's always the there's always the person that thinks whoever's in a band is just you know carrying a cape or something around with them and just doing all this crazy shit, not realizing the mundanity of the regular life is the dominant feature of that person's life. You know so i can understand exactly what you're saying
1: Is but i any- enjoy my life i mean i love making this stuff i love i mean you, you live by your you, know, you like, live hey, by i got record i gotta finish that record i gotta make this i gotta do that i mean when i look around this room it's like full of fucking chaos but there's instruments everywhere all kinds of crazy things and i mean even though it's stacked to the ceiling and it looks like a hoarder just raided sam asher guitar center it's still uh I love it and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I mean, this is the greatest thing I can uh I can be able to do. I love it. I have a huge drawing table over here, all kinds of fucking equipment everywhere, and I can just make anything that I want to make anytime I want. Sometimes that that uh luxury and that freedom can be a bit uh constricting because I have so many uh, so many uh possibilities that I sometimes I have a hard time picking one path to go. And the, in those cases, it's nice to have a collaborator who could be like, Hey, fucking let's go this way. But sometimes I just do it on my own. And so then I get stuck trying to figure out which of the crossroads to take to go to that way. Or I just record a lot of things and never release it or write a lot of things and never use it. But, but by doing that, I learn new things and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm exercising what I do. So if I write fucking tons of things and none of that comes out, I still got the exercise and experience out of that. So there's worthwhile gain from it anyways.
0: Well, also think if you're, you're doing this every day, you're living art, you're going to be able to fight off redundancy better than someone who does a record and then puts that whole thing away. And they got to come back to do a record. What did we do last time? You know, like because you're in constantly in the process of creating. Not every day you're going to hit a home run, but you're constantly doing something. I think that's a easier way to to not get caught in a similar trap of just oh, he just does this one skull thing, or he only does this noise thing. It allows you the fluidity with your creativity to do more things.
1: Yeah, I never think about it as far as if I'm going to get accolades. That's never coming in, into uh, the equation. Uh, usually, like like you were talking about before about how I would always make weird records and things. And, and one of the things that I really always love is finding new ways to do the how the records could be presented too. Like I, I did things where there would be like hidden tracks that were after lock grooves that you'd have to pick up the needle and drop it at the center of the record and it would play wow. out only to hear that and things like that. I really, I love that. And I love to think of like ways to like, do things wrong, but make them right and do things different and look at things from a different point of view. And like the records that um, that all the relapse records, they have this uh, spot UV ink on there. They're just like a clear ink that you only see if you hold it in the light a certain way. And that was something that I found out about in the 90s when I had a graphic design job at a newspaper and I was running the uh, the graphic department for this newspaper called the News Herald. And they, uh, these companies would send me uh, samples of different printing techniques. And that was one of them. And it set in my head, like, man, one day I'm going to fucking find a label that will allow me to use this because this is amazing because I hate lots of text on the records. I just want it to be the artwork. And this was my way of getting around that. The text and the um, the markings, the identity of the records could be, could be, emboldened by these spot UV inks and only seen in, in special, you know, when you hold it in the light, it reflects. And, and I think that that's amazing. So these kinds of things excite me. And I think about that stuff a lot. And that's a big part of my day is thinking of, of those things. Also thinking about ways to do things with music that's different, but it's still gonna be interesting to me and entertaining to me. And, um, you know, by doing it for so long, you have to always keep challenging and pushing yourself to, to find new ways to do things without being, like you said, redundant.
0: No, nah, it's a challenge, but I, I I think it's a lot better than you showing up every day, do building a widget pot, you know, punching in, punching out. I don't see that kind of life for you.
1: And, yeah, and the same song over and over again or something like that. That would just be stupid. I, I wouldn't like that, but uh I like, I like, I'm lucky to be able to make this stuff and I'm glad that some people like it as well. So it's a, uh, it's a good, good thing to be able to do.
0: You don't seem to be someone that rests on your laurels or really worried about if the world doesn't hold you up on a pedestal, like an Olympic pedestal in a certain order. I think you've always created things now knowing that you say, like, of course I want to listen to my own record. That's a great way to put it. I think you've always created things out of, you know, whether your own interests, or just how you were feeling at that moment. And I think that that's why you like it's a bizarre I hate the the corporate mentality of it's a brand but it's it's why integrity has lasted this long. Because the people that you've intrigued to follow along whether they found you in the 90s, they found you in the 2000s or even later on, there's something captivating about what comes from you, you know? And I think that that's your 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 lasting value is that you're constantly, you know, coming up with something new. So that way you never feel like you're just being redundant. And I think that that's why people get so excited bizarrely enough because you've, you've uh, entertained and done different things with the band that when you do these, like, you know, like the Phoenixville set enough, people still want to know that you guys still have it to bring it like you guys did back in the day. And I think it's a fantastic way to do it. Cause there are plenty of artists that get to one point and they don't want to go back and, you know, you know, hardcore kids are always going to love the first couple of records that you guys do. I just love that you still want to do this. You still want to play music. It's been a long fucking career. And I know you still have a ton of shit you still want to do. I'd love to see if you guys, I mean, especially for your love of horror and all the arcane information, you got you could write an amazing screenplay at the minimum, if not something even crazier with the, uh, if you have found the time or interest to do so.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Joe. I mean, I appreciate your really kind words. Yeah. I would love to do something like that. If, if it ever was presented to me, I would, I would be interested in it. I'm not interested in talking about, you know, writing about my childhood or something like that. I mean, that's what podcasts and interviews are for. Exactly. Exactly. Also, I mean, I sort of thought about that too. Like when somebody wanted me to do those books, I was like, but then I can't do interviews anymore. I mean, that, yeah, it'll already be done. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well then you get they 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 set you up with someone who has a canned answer and then yeah. 40 people like me ask you this question and you're like oh fuck here's where he's gonna ask me this and I gotta say this again you know like <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah. I and I don't see that being you hey ma'am yeah it would be boring so. <laughs> I I hope that you had fun doing this I hope I didn't bore you by getting into the nitty-gritty but you really unearthed some stuff for me and I know there's probably people like me who are excited to hear you just go a little bit further than, than the simple, what we can read on Wikipedia about some things. And I, I think that it's awesome. You know, you're in your early fifties and you, you didn't go back. You didn't go, nah, man, I just got a job at, you know, target. And I just, you know, do, you know, you're, you are proof again that some people are just born on a different path And throughout their life, they just go on that path a different way than the rest of the world. And we need people like you because you are the ones who create this kind of art that definitely motivates people and intrigues people and has people checking out random churches in fucking Britain and all this other wild, arcane (laughs) shit that never would have come to light if they just listened to just simple, straight edge music.
1: Thanks, Joe. That's really kind of you to say.
0: So, So, um. I'm gonna tag you on all the stuff for the um, the social medias. I doubt I doubt you have too much to say in the long run. I know it's been late for you, and uh, with the times changing, so thank you for coming on the show. I really look forward to this. Is hardcore. I really, I, I, I really, I really, I know we you played it already, but this is a different room, dwid We have you paired up with some of the fucking. If 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 this is this is some people's wet dreams to see you guys in Earth Crisis and all this stuff and I'm telling you the kids today have a purity and love that I don't know if you're ready for because to them this is all new this is so exciting or some of these older people that are coming are coming because they just want to relive it with their kids now so it, it's really
1: I don't think that we ever played with Earth Crisis uh, ever before so this will be the first time I think yeah ever.
0: I know. Yeah. I know. Carl was so excited. He's like playing with integrity. <laughs> like,
1: yeah, it's gonna be cool. I don't that's... think we've ever played with them before. We were supposed to play once in, in Syracuse, and it didn't work out. We. It's a long story, but. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't think we ever actually played with them before, so this is the first.
0: And this is groundbreaking, and it makes it's me even not. happier. <laughs> I could be wrong, though. Yeah. But
1: I, I think it, I think it's the first time.
0: Just thank you for your time. Thank you for anything that you've ever done to influence people, because. Again, a lot of people got turned on to some really awesome stuff. I I can only tell you that there was um, Damien for punishment and um, he's a Dwid integrity, super fan. And the amount of conversations and, and wormholes that we went down in vans at two o'clock in the morning, driving across the country on tour because of stuff that you put in front of him was absolutely fantastic. And just thank you for doing what you do, man. And I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks and um, I'll tag all your stuff, so I you don't have to worry about. The, hey, I got this. I, you know, just thank you for what you do, and I hope you continue doing it because you never know. You you are slowly becoming the guy that is the rat to your life. You know, you're now showing these kids this whole new world, and I think that's fucking fantastic.
1: Well, thanks for saying that. It means a lot. Thank you. All
0: right, brother, you be well. Okay.
1: Me too. I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks, man. All right, man. Take care. There we go. Again. I don't, I don't
0: think there was much boring shit going on. I love the story. I love the almost like the, the diving back, getting to some of the influences early on in his life that would eventually show up time and time again in his releases. Great conversation. I had a blast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll keep the end of this pretty short. There are still tickets, two-day tickets, Saturday and Sunday, or singular tickets, Saturday or Sunday, available for This Is Hardcore Fest. Integrity will be there. They're gonna rip fucking ass. If it's anything like the fucking show in Phoenix It'll be, that times 20. It's gonna be wild. Can't wait to see Dwayne the guys. Make sure that you're supporting all the bands. Make sure you're supporting cool podcasts. And if you are out there doing cool shit, make sure that you acknowledge the people around you that are also doing cool shit. No one is ever going to lose from being someone who can say you're doing a great job or your fucking record's great or dude I love what your band's doing no reason to hold the praise back that's all I got to say thank you once again and we'll talk to you next week TIHC podcast for any of the show notes thank you to everybody goodbye